Welcome to a special mailbag episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, where I, Adam, am sitting down with one of our Patreon subscribers, Robert, who has generously become one of our patrons of Metallic Great Worm tier. That means that he's able to sit down and record an episode with us, and he decided that today we're going to be planning a final encounter for his party to end his campaign, which we built a domain of dread for the last time we spoke. Robert, it's been a while since we spoke, and so I'd like to check in, but actually the last time we spoke was not that episode. You and I went out for dinner with Mieko, which was funny. I walked away afterwards to shake my head. It was a whirlwind for me because I asked Mieko, find me a bar that's not too seedy and shitty. She goes, here's one that I know is attached to a bowling alley. I went, good enough. And it was the most swanky fucking bar. Like it was a high class restaurant that I was underdressed for. And (laughs) we walk in to discover that you're nine feet tall. It's still... (laughs) sitting in the booth over in the corner (laughs) we walked over and had a couple of drinks had a good time it was great you picked up the tab which was very generous and i'm publicly thanking you for that and i owe you one uh the next time i'm in town so um but have you been since then i walked out oh you also brought me a a gift it was uh well we're gonna do a legend lore on it at roughly the time this episode comes out so so how are you uh, I'm I'm doing good. Had a lot of fun that night. Honestly, it was, it was a ton of fun. I had no fucking idea where the bowling alley was. Um, Apparently, it was up on the roof. That's that's way too swanky. I can't do. It's like an, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, or an infinity bowling alley. I'm not sure how that would work, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I've been uh, doing doing pretty good. Uh, you know, work got real busy. I got a, a nine or ten month old kid. I'm not sure which. Uh, but uh, he's got about 40 teeth and he likes to use them so that's that's kept me on my toes kept me busy uh, <laughs> yeah and then holidays i mean i know nobody else is busy during the holidays but i'm not that one guy that happens to have a lot going on so yeah do you have a good christmas do you have good holidays yeah i had a fantastic thanksgiving uh it was a real challenge this year my uh my wife can't eat dairy or soy hmm if you ever tried to prepare a dairy-free thanksgiving but what are you stuck with almond milk uh almond milk and oat milk some because it turns out soy is in everything but uh you can't butter a turkey with almond milk um but yeah no that turned out great and then yeah christmas was was really really good so yeah do you get anything dnd related uh i I did not receive anything D&D related from uh, from from my people. I bought for myself a couple of books. I got a uh, I got a D&D pop up book, which I cannot recommend because I opened it and it tore immediately. And then I got a uh, I think I actually posted it on the discord. It was uh, a giant book of random tables. Yes. Yeah, yeah I saw that. So, so that looks really cool. Yeah, no, that, that's been very helpful. A lot of good. But uh, that's about it. Did you? How about you? I got a couple of minis. I got three sets of dice. I've been bitching and complaining all year that I never buy myself dice. I got three sets so far. And uh, I say so far because Miek is coming here at the, in the beginning of January and we're doing Christmas when she lands. So, um, and uh, I got like a notebook and there's something else too. Really beautiful, like leather bound notebook that you can like hold the pages out of and put in new leaves and whatnot. So. So that's really, yeah, yeah, it's really good. Everybody here in our group goes all out on Secret Santa. We have Mm -hmm. like a $30 limit for it and everyone spends 60, right? So, okay. So, but not like a joke white elephant or anything. No, 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 no. It's a legit Secret Santa. We do a random draw with a website I found online. 
and it lets you set it up so that you can't draw the same person two or three years in a row. So like, so it, it gets passed around pretty good and everybody gets an opportunity to, to interact. And to, there are some people like Dave and Charlie who are newer additions where Dan, Megan and, and Casey have been there for a while. So it gets everybody to like intermingle on a friend level. So just a D and D friend level. So it's, it's, it was good. That's really um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. We got a bunch of like light up dice and shit as well this year. So there was a lot of neat things flying around the table. Uh, you're still playing D and D. Or you want a hiatus? Uh, I just finished up a Curse of Strahd campaign last month. So how'd that go? I mean, it good and bad. Uh, my I, I got the feeling uh, that my players at that you know we we'd been playing about forty five or fifty sessions in, playing for about a year and a half, and they year and a half in a uh, in Barovia is a long goddamn time, and so they really just wanted to finish it. So we we fast forward about we skip like six maybe eight sessions and just went to the you know ravenloft the final fight i I sped through it a little bit but it was still pretty good i want to say it's it's definitely more interesting than uh a lot of the curse of strahd final fights i read about Mm -hmm. it was not he did not get stomped he uh he proved to be a a difficult enemy for the party and uh, kept him on their toes for a good four or five hours so good that that's what it should be like right so yeah yeah uh, you've heard you've heard me bitch and complain in the past about it. So um, about how Strahd goes down like a bitch sometimes, but I think it really depends on the DM and it depends on uh, how prepared your party is. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so what uh, are you doing now? Have you guys just been in a hiatus since then? Yeah, they wanted to take a break, and uh, honestly, I think they want to switch that entire campaign, as sad as it makes me to say, over to a book club for a while. Huh. So, yeah. And uh, other than that, I've got uh, a one shot coming up here in a couple of days that I've been prepping for. So that'll be that'll be fun. We kind of chatted about it. It's a uh, it's a toy store robbery where the players all get or the characters, I should say, all get shrunk to six inches tall. And then they've got to fight a evil living uh, Christmas tree ornament that is animating the toys to attack them. Nice. So yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. A little levity in the wake of Curse of Strahd is not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, are you gonna do the book club if they want to do it? Uh, yeah, I probably will. So, uh, they they've all got pretty good taste in books, so shouldn't be too bad. Yeah. Anybody that that says in their thirties, "Hey, I want to do a book club," probably has pretty good taste. Yeah. Yeah. So. So have you developed any of the domain of dread that we worked on last time? Yeah, I have been. I mean, it's it's bits and pieces. Uh, I've been adding more to those random tables. I've been adding more to the the ships they encounter, and really just trying to figure out the motivation of the various factions. And I could ramble about that for another three hours, but I'll I'll bring up the two things I'm most proud of. Um, I'll start with a pun, and then I'll move on to nightmare fuel. So that's that's where how I like to do things. So Th- those are the only two sides of uh of D and D. So yeah, th- those are the two sides of my coin. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, one of the settlements that they'll find is uh, it's very much the water world, like salvage atoll. You know, a whole bunch of shipwrecks and pieces of floating building all lashed together. Uh, yeah. And the people there, the the town leaders, want to have a name that's inspiring but also themed so they're trying to come up with a name they go with a salvage like a combination of salvage and salvation yeah 
it doesn't work. It's such a bad mouthfeel. It's hard to say. <laughs> Derisively, the everybody else in the town refers to it as portmanteau. Fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you know, it's 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 a port because it's where all the boats go. And the, yeah, so yeah. And okay. Then, so the thing that you have to add now is a handful of bards that live there that are putting on a play. And they're only using puns, and everybody is aware of that. Uh, but your, the party can go visit it uh, and watch it. It's called A Play on Words. Yeah. Hold on. Let me write that down. <laughs> I mean, it might that might just be, like, puns might just be a form of currency. <laughs> Fuck, wouldn't that? That's, that is a great thing for Faye, actually. Yeah, that would be a great thing for Faye. It would also be, you know, imagine the city council meeting and then what the person, they just, people just stand up and just rattle off puns. That's the pastime, you know, people are complaining. <laughs> but the uh, the other thing, I was trying to figure out uh, as a random encounter, I'd just written down scurvy. And I was like, <laughs> what, what would the random encounter for scurvy be? I was like, okay, it's not going to be fucking scurvy. It's got to be like a monster of some sort. And then I randomly found something. I'm going to drop a link for you here. Um, I found a creature. Let me know when that comes through. Uh, it's yeah, a hold on. I got I got to open Discord. I always shut it down just because um, otherwise the idiots will talk. Yeah. Uh, for those who are listening, it's a uh, the scientific name is a Phronema sedentaria, spelled with a ph. Um, oh yeah, he, that's a gross little thing, isn't it? Yeah, and so it's called a. It's also called a barrel shrimp. And so I saw that uh, it's a it's a little tiny crustacean that you know when it kills its prey, it forms a little barrel out of its body to lay its eggs in and do things. Uh, supposedly, it was the um, inspiration for the alien queen in Alien Aliens, and you can kind of see that. Yeah, uh, the, the gigantic back section. Yeah. And I said, hey, what if that was in your teeth? What if scurvy was you hear a scratching and a scritching and someone looks in your mouth and one of those things is is made a little home in your tooth? Uh, so that's kind of my, like I said, a little bit of nightmare fuel. Um, that's horrifying. And I absolutely love it. I yeah. love that you're in the middle of talking and suddenly a tooth just comes out like, what the fuck? And it's these yeah. things. And then it gets up and it crawls away, you know. Or it crawls it. underneath the next tooth, right? Like, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, somebody opens their mouth and they just have a mouthful of these things. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. I'll drop that randomly in the actual uh, It's a Mimic server as my my scurvy idea and see how people react here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. Um, I don't even know how to react to that. I think it's brilliant. And I, am, I love doing weird body horror shit. I love it. And I, my initial thought with scurvy was to just have it be a uh, uh, sea hag that is cursing people. Mm. So it's your teeth fall out first and then your tongue and then you cough up your vocal cords and then your lungs are the final stage of it. So and it's just like I would have it. The disease is called the siren song or something like that. Right. So. All right. Well, I've written all of that down. So I'm stealing it. Wow. <laughs> um let's get into the the actual topic of the of this episode though yeah. which is planning a final encounter uh normally uh i get into a monologue after we do the intro part and i break down the idea of the episode but we're going to mix it up a bit today before most of these one-on-one -on -one episodes i reach out and i ask what the patron in question would like to talk about for an episode and it always surprises everybody and catches them off guard and i feel like it stresses people out 
to have to choose like I'm like I'm judging them on a school project or something uh and I usually get a I don't know what do you think and then I can't see it through discord but I can feel the floundering panic whenever whenever I ask it's happened about four times now and it makes me giggle every time um and uh but then I end up providing a bunch of options that they choose from and then I will have to prompt two or three times so this one so so okay not that one you are now talking about something completely different are we circling back to this one okay and then I will go away build the breakdown make my notes on the side that nobody else can see except for me and then send a copy of the breakdown a few days in advance um, this is actually the method that we use for the regular episodes too most of the time when I prep the episode I build the breakdown and I do all of my research at the same time and then sometimes I will have usually Pepperina say hey I'm doing prep work three weeks in advance I can't seem to find the breakdown uh even though the episode's on the on the schedule so can you send me the breakdown and I'm like I don't have 25 minutes to research dragons right Yes, hold on. Um, so then I go and I do that. But with you, Robert, I ask you what you want to talk about, and you send me a fucking tome. It is it is a textbook. When we were planning the doldrums, which is your domain of dread, if I remember correctly, then you sent me six pages of actual really well thought out super notes that were full sentences and not in point form. They had not just what I want to do, but why and how, and here's what I'm thinking. And your random encounters were half a page long instead of just mushroom people in loincloths, which is what I've seen on other notes from people. Uh, this time you sent me four pages and that is an insane amount of prep. And I absolutely appreciate it as an over prepper myself. The other over preppers on this podcast, I will be completely upfront. Our over preppers are Peps, Megan, Casey, and Kyle. Everybody else, actually, I think Terry does a lot of, of prep work when he's like in his car thinking about it and he'll mm -hmm. practice monologues and stuff. But I'm not sure he takes a whole lot of notes. Everybody else, by the seat of their pants, maybe a half page of notes. Dave will sometimes just open it up to a random page. If he's not working out of a module, he'll just open it up to a random page in the monster manual and go, Yeah, that's roughly the CR. I can deal with this and then build an, an encounter out of it. So, but as I was prepping the breakdown for this and working on my notes, I realized that everything that I was saying, I was just reworking your words. And so I was I was plagiarizing. So I stopped. I copied your notes into the script. And I'm just going to let you take it from here for the first part of this episode. Because I have thoughts, of course. But you summed it up pretty perfectly. So I'm going to let you do the heavy lifting on this. And I'm going to interject with a bunch of thoughts and ideas. And I'll argue with you when when it's time to argue, but like, for the most part, you've made some excellent points about building a final encounter and the kind of thought that should go into it and, and how to get to that really cathartic feel good place of being in that last session of a campaign. Well, uh, I take plagiarism as a compliment. So thank you for that. And happy, happy to attempt some heavy lifting here. So, <laughs> uh, so in our discussion about a final fight, uh, I'll, or the final encounter, I'll start with a caveat here uh, for the people who are leaping to their keyboards right now. Uh, it doesn't have to be a fight. It can be a social encounter, or uh, if you can figure out a way to do it as an ex exploration encounter, 
uh, it, or any form of non-combat scene. It can be any of those. But as we've all experienced, D&D just naturally tends toward combat. I mean, I'm sure if you actually cut apart the books and you sectioned it out, this is how much is combat and this is how much is not. The predominance would be combat. I would say probably at least half, if not two thirds. Um, Nobody theory crafts exploration encounters. Right. Nobody theory crafts a character build based on how well they can talk to a mayor. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I haven't seen too many, you know, actual plays or entertainment actual plays that do that. Um, I have seen one. Uh, uh, I won't name it but it's a it's a fairly famous group of people that they did it entirely in a fey court and it was entirely just interactions between fey in a court setting and so it was i mean there was a little bit of combat thrown in there but it was predominantly social and it it was fantastic that sounds uh, like l5r honestly yeah it 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 really does um i'm not sure how you would do it in an exploration pillar focused manner but i mean how many end of the world movies are there where they've got to survive the blizzard the volcano it's them versus the environment i'm sure you could find a way um but regardless of the manner you choose it really helps to just answer your basic story five w's uh and in doing so you kind of learn a lot about your final encounter your villain and even your world uh you know i learned a lot about my doldrums when i started looking at the final fight and saying all right who's there when are they fighting why what is enable a fight these things just expanded the story beyond the fight and you know cast shadows and echoes back through my entire story um i feel like reverse engineering is absolutely the correct way to do it even if you don't do it for the whole campaign doing it for the last level worth of sessions or the last tier even if you're going to go all the way up to level 20 it's good to take it from 17 all the way up to to get you to that point yes right? yeah, absolutely um but see I, i'm gonna say this i agree it doesn't have to be a fight as a matter of fact my favorite final encounter i've ever had was uh escaping the crumbling ruins after a big fight mm -hmm. so it was a series of skill checks and rescuing some of the npcs that had broken off to go in other places in the ruins and and so it was incredibly stressful we did a evacuation uh session one time where we evacuated a city because the enemy had taken a tarasque had made it scry proof cast enlarge upon it four or five times and then cast invisibility upon it and it was it was coming to the kingdom just a category five hurricane has been aimed at the kingdom yeah and threw it out yeah so the idea was that they needed to get away because as far as they knew, it would be one foot one footstep will crush every building, including the castle and everything. Yeah. Uh, this is a mountain that, that walks. So um, that was incredibly stressful. You can't save everybody. Who do you save? District by district, right? So this is how I would do exploration. But if I can be honest, your final encounter should include all three pillars the fight should have the role playing in it there should be monologuing and cursing and barking commands and there should be a shifting battlefield with npcs and and minor enemies that that are going to betray the villain or allies that are going to betray the party or something it should be crazy and unpredictable it's like you read my notes uh yes yes <laughs> and it's not it's not just including every pillar it's shining a light on those specific pillars yeah you, know, you, you really need to promote each you know uh type of character 
so that everybody feels like they get their moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, and and that kind of leads into the next. Uh, you know, what's the purpose of a final encounter? Uh, and it, you know, it's not just to end the game. You know, we don't want to just end because you could you could just narrate that. You guys get to the castle and you're leveled up enough and you have the thing and the bad guy's not prepared and you kill him and hooray. Well, what loot do you want? And you all go on and do your shit. Um, but that's that doesn't feel good from somebody who's playing or from the person writing it. I mean, have you I mean, have you seen a movie? I saw a movie recently that was an end of the world movie. Have you ever seen a movie where it just stops, doesn't end, just stops? Yeah, that's called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, but that one, at least when you're done with it, you look back on the two hours and say, okay, that was still worth it. I've got a lot of quotes from that I can use. I laughed a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, I've seen a few where the movie just stops and there's no explanation. There's no, this was the monster. This was the bad guy. This was what's happening. It was just, it stopped. And it's like, oh, okay. What's my fucking funny, life? Funny story. I went and I saw, what was it called? End of Days in theaters. And that one was the... The religious horror movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger was like a yes. bodyguard. Yeah. At the end of the movie, spoiler alert for this 25-year-old movie that nobody cares about any longer. Um, at the end of the movie, Arnie uh, is possessed by whatever the demon is, and he can clearly overpower our protagonist girl and uh, gets her on an altar. And he is going in for the killing blow to sacrifice her. I saw it in theaters with my buddy Rob at the time. And suddenly the entire screen goes black. He like raises his hand up in the air and it goes black. No credits, nothing. Then suddenly the lights come up and I look at Rob and I'm like, was that the end of the fucking movie? And I thought that it was the gutsiest, the best thing I'd ever seen ever. Turns out the projector died and we actually left the theater before the manager could come and offer everybody free tickets. And for about eight years, I thought that's how the movie ended. So then when I caught it, I sat down with my dad to watch on like a Sunday matinee thing on cable television. I'm like, this has the gutsiest ending ever. And then it got to the point and the movie keeps going and I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And I've been talking it up all day. So like when you say a movie just ends, I actually have a really positive, funny experience with that. But that would drive me absolutely nuts if there was no like actual resolution to a to a proper storyline. There's a there's a recent movie called Leave the World Behind. Yeah. Don't watch it. I'll tell you this. I, I'll say this over and over and over again. Netflix makes good series and they make shitty movies. Yes. And this one had this one had star power. It had great acting. I mean, Marshall Ali, uh, Julia Roberts, et cetera. And it, the writers just kind of gave up. Eh, whatever. It ends like this. And I'm sure there's some deeper thing, but you know, when it comes to a D&D game where you've spent hundreds of hours of your life and people have poured themselves into their character and you have poured yourself into this world and this fight and this villain, you don't want it to just stop. And it, you know, a little bit of a it's a little bit selfish, but as a DM, that's I want them to remember the final fight. And I want that to be the thing they talk about, you know, in a year from now. Oh, remember when this happened and that happened? Well, I want the this and the that to be when the villain monologued or when they had them, you know, the the heroes in their clutches and there was that savior moment or the sacrifice. I don't want it to be uh, when they were talking to that random fucking NPC that I gave a funny voice in the tavern. If that's the moment that sticks out for them, why am I putting in the effort, you know? That's the big reason behind the campaign builder series on the Patreon is memorable encounters. 
right? And you make memorable encounters by having it be dynamic and interesting and more yeah. than just your random, an owl bear comes out of the woods. Yeah. And to make them memorable and to make them dynamic is, you know, you make it so that as best you can, all of the players can make a meaningful contribution. Everybody's playing this game. It's, you know, it's not just Michael Jordan. It's Michael Jordan and it's Scottie Pippen and it's whoever else was on the Bulls. I can remember those two because they were an NBA jam, uh, 96. So that, that's what I remember. But yeah. um, so you need to tailor the scenario so that everyone can really get a hand on the ball. And so that'll encourage participation. People will pay attention. It'll make it more memorable. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you're thinking about the final encounter and the purpose of it, beyond just include, you know, concluding the game or beyond just making sure everybody gets to play, the easy, the most important thing from a DM's perspective, in my mind, that is very easy to forget and get lost in is we want the party to win. We are not rooting for the bad guy. The villain may be who I have been playing the entire time. I might be knee deep in this character and have put a lot of myself into them. I still want to be beat. I want them to win so that I can enjoy their success with them and I can be part of that hero story and end it in a satisfying way. My players know that I root for them because when they end up going down on death saves and the enemy is still standing over them, with the crossbow pointed at their unconscious body and no one else is nearby and there's like all the Hail Marys have been used. I am more stressed out than any given player. The players have been watching this slowly. They've been counting their hit points, watching them go down, going, oh shit. Well, I guess who I'm going to play next. And I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat going, oh fuck, I have storylines for this person. I am so much on the player character's side. I yeah. need the heroes to win. Right, so that the villains can do shit again later. When it comes to the final encounter, that doesn't change. I need the heroes to win. They need to go home and finish the hero's journey. We did a whole episode about the hero's journey. Yeah. Half of the, the podcast ago. And it was, it's so important to me. I'm with you 100% on this. We we can't be adversarial, especially in the final encounter. Yeah. And I, I will usually pull put in some sort of sidekick NPC record. You know, this is the one that's it, it, when things go real bad, when things go real, real bad, this is going to be the savior briefly. This is going to turn the tide of the battle and that sidekick or that savior is going to die. And whenever I have to pull that card in my games, we usually take a quick bio break. You know, oh, let's go get a drink. I got to pee because I'm choked up. You know, that that character and their their dilemmas and the struggle of the party gets to me. And luckily, we're not on camera whenever I'm playing this year, my uh, very emotional monotone voice um <laughs> so uh, i can get away with that but yeah i i want them to win i want them to to succeed uh and i try and give them every opportunity to um the yeah. next the next hail mary that i have in my back pocket is a dm tool because i have killed a couple of player characters already in this campaign and we have felt the presence of their ghosts still trying to help here and there i'm gonna have them go quiet for the last quarter of the campaign so that when the party is down, the ghosts can come in and possess their bodies to, to grab that health potion and get someone else up. That is a great idea. That's, that's I mean, narratively, that fits the scenario probably a lot better. Mine, uh, so I had a grung healer as my sidekick. Yeah, I remember him. You were talking about him last time. And, uh, and, and it turned out they found out that he was the, uh, the grung equivalent of a six-year-old. Yeah. So he was a child soldier. Um, what they didn't fully, and so I did these things where I did these, uh, I call them campfire stories, 
they they're moments of uh, levity to break up the, the difficulty of you know dread domains and such of where okay your characters are sitting around a campfire uh so and so fighter you're going to tell a story and then we're going to flash that back to that story and we're going to have a one shot of when you were like level one doing something and everybody gets to play a new class mm -hmm. from your story and you know you're going to survive and we can joke and make all these things because we're not you know in mortal danger um his story he was the kid sidekick of a, essentially the power rangers uh the forest friends five who had magical rings and when they put them on they picked up like six levels in monk and uh at a carnival they ended up fighting the equivalent of the street sharks the thundercats and the teenage Mutant ninja turtles all under the control of what appeared to be mumra <laughs> but and, and back to an early yeah it was it was insane it was insane um but back to an earlier you know uh, the, the puns because D, D is fueled by puns uh the forest friends five are defending the forest from everything so their enemy is a nautically themed artificer the captain of industry fuck god yeah. damn it who is looking to plunder the forest for resources and of course he summons his giant robot the titan of industry who yeah. lives inside the uh giant labyrinth called the military industrial complex no he was made out of a uh, ferris wheel um, okay. but but yes that 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 would have been yeah uh so yeah so my little uh frogman had his power ranger equivalent ring but because he was a kid he would use it and then it you know he'd kill him you know get his one-time use out of it and uh yeah that that hurt like when my party went down and they needed that help yeah. uh it, it hurt to to use that and i mean it may, made it more memorable you know this npc the sidekick they've had for 46 sessions uh sacrificing himself but yeah um yeah yeah so uh that kind of leads into the next you know we're talking about rip cords and safeguards and and trying to ensure the party wins uh and that all comes down to planning the final fight and so i uh i turned to the source of all current knowledge on the internet i turned to reddit and i put up a poll and i asked everybody uh you know when do you plan your final fight uh do you do it when you start building the campaign like even before session zero do you do it halfway through do you do it right before the final encounter do you not plan it just go with the flow or do you use the rules as written published module for everything uh, or other and uh i thought the results were interesting i got 224 vote votes and the the two leaders uh at 27 percent each were when they start building the campaign before session zero and the other one was right before the final encounter and a little bit of a distant third with 19 percent was halfway through but uh you know that that leads to me that uh, a plurality of people plan it pretty you know either at the beginning of the campaign or long before the final encounter you know if you're talking halfway through the average campaign you're 15 20 sessions out um and i i fall into the first category i like to plan as much of my initial uh, as much of the final fight in the initial campaign build as possible even before i know who the players are even before i know what the characters and the classes and the races i don't care about that for the final fight uh because i need that final fight plan to then work backwards and foreshadow and echo that through the rest of my campaign because i don't want surprises 
for my players. When, when I say surprises, I want to be very clear. I mean mechanical elements that might pop up in the final fight that change the tactics, not necessarily talking about like plot twists. I'm fine throwing in plot twists. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, you know, I found when I was going through my notes earlier, looking through my, my notes for my Dread campaign, I found uh, two or three pages I'd used to plan my Thanksgiving dinner this year. Uh, and as you can imagine, I put a lot of prep work into that too. And I was like, oh, this is actually fairly similar to the final fight. You know, you, you want to plan out your courses. You want to plan out how you're going to use your oven and your cooktops and all that. And you don't make the menu a surprise. Yeah. You don't want to surprise anybody with what you're cooking, uh, because you want them to enjoy the dinner or have some sort of buy into it. They might have dietary restrictions whatever you don't want to surprise um so when i plan i plan out my final fight and then i look at things like is my boss using layer actions or legendary actions can they fly are they going to be doing counter spells things like that uh and when i find all those little pieces i use that to go back through my campaign and make sure that my players have encountered that once or twice because it's the first time is when you're fighting the boss that's just cheap to win because of that is cheap um, now back to the Thanksgiving dinner analogy, they don't need to know exactly how I'm going to use it. They don't need to know exactly the combinations. They just need to know I'm cooking a turkey. Now the flavor of the turkey is going to be a little bit different, but they're not going to be surprised by what it is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're not going to show up and find it's a ham, right? So or dim sum or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Now I hear you on this. I'll tell you right now, I very much not only know what the last fight encounter is going to be, but I know what. I before I even plan the the campaign, I know the feeling that I want when we close our binders for the last time on the campaign. So it's more than just the encounter, it's and you get home. You go and find the loved ones. This person has been this this person never walked away from that battle. We're gonna have a funeral for them to wrap up the session, right? We're going to we're gonna do the end of Return of the King, where it's got nine different endings to it as we wrap up all the little the little Six plot sections. points and whatnot so um but i sit down and i think about that how can i wrap it all up nicely how can i get everybody on the same page uh emotionally how can we build to this point and if i want them to be sad that an npc died i'm adding that npc early if i want them to feel victorious over a battle or bittersweet about it i need to know was my villain evil or just misguided and couldn't be redeemed right like these are the questions that that I ask myself before I even come up with what's that encounter going to look like. Right. And so I'm very much, well, I said at the beginning, I'm an over prepper, right? Like that's, I know what my story beats are. I know who the lieutenants are and I know when to start adding the clues as early as possible. And that means that, I mean, we're level six right now in a 20 level campaign and they have already uncovered enough mysteries to be like holy shit we're fighting gods later and we fucking know it right so it's time to prep and that's what the whole campaign is prep for that big fight and so there's a lot of excitement there's a lot of payoff to then just have it be a rug pull is so shitty right it's we you and i quote a lot of movies because we both have either seen a lot of movies or we just channel the ghosts of dead people that were movie critics i don't know which it is i don't know it's both it's both yeah it's both um but it's like uh the scene i i liken it to is uh in the movie troy you know quoting another 20 plus year old movie um yeah brennan gleason 
uh, I think Menelaus has uh, Orlando Bloom. He's fighting Paris and he's kicking the shit out of him. He has he has no problem winning this fight. And then Orlando Bloom trips over a stone and Brennan Gleason stops and says, get up, get up. A stone will not steal my honor. And hmm. for me, that's the the tactical trick is that stone is stealing my honor as the DM from having the fair fight with my players. Because, uh, I mean, it would be, how easy would it be as a DM? I'm going to put in 10 things that you never saw. You never saw damage resistance. You never saw invulnerability. You never saw flying, very invisible, blah, 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 blah. And that's just DMs versus the player, not collaborative storytelling. Let me tell you my favorite thing to telegraph when I hit tier four is all of my campaign villains have power word kill. Mm, yeah. And the players need to know how it works because now they're not looking at zero. They're looking at 100. And right. it suddenly makes everybody feel that much squishier. And I don't have to come at them with Meteor Swarm or Wish or anything else. I just take away a third, sometimes half of their yep. hit points, right? So that's fucking scary for people. And that's totally worth it. And now I can give them all the magic items in the world. But if they walk into that combat without full hit points, they're already panic, right? And this is something that I can do as my foreshadowing to this final fight to keep them engaged and involved. And that's not adversarial. That is like, if I held that back and then waited for them to hit 99 and just went, ah, you're dead. <laughs> that's, that's such a shitty move, right? Like there's it's no anticipation. There's no payoff. I mean, the, the payoff is you never play with those people again. Yeah. I was going to say, who's that for, right? Like that's for the memory of your ego in the moment, because you'll never get a chance it's, to do it again. It's a, it's a, it's a masturbatory exercise as a DL, you know, and I, we call, you know, in that case, we call that a 3.5 maneuver back when it was adversarial DMing because everybody yeah. had the gimmick, the one thing they're super good at and they suck at everything else. And so you could just target everything else. Right. And make it so that they can't get their one thing. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, so like in my, my recent curse of Strahd game, uh, you know, I had to up Strahd a bit uh, because my players were doing so much damage around that yeah. he wasn't going to survive. Um, and they were also, it was a lot of homebrew. So they were level 13 or 14 when they fought him way above where they needed to be. Um, so, okay. He's going to have and liberally use counter spell. He's just going to shut down the caster. He's gonna he's gonna look for when it's healing and he's gonna counterspell the healer. Why? Because fuck you, I can. Now they'd seen that three or four times before. They'd lost a character because of that. And so they knew it was a danger. Uh and then I threw in haste and blink. And man, you want to talk about a a, a scary encounter, <laughs> it's strawed with blink. Uh yeah, yeah. Um, but like, yeah, but they'd seen all of that before. They'd seen different aspects of it. Uh, and I'm I'm completely open with my players. Hey, ask me about it. I'll tell you some, you know, I'll give you some idea of what's going on. Um, yeah. So it's I've, it's yeah. I, I've I've got a lieutenant for my big bad evil guy that they haven't met yet. And his whole shtick is that he's gonna just eat magic. So yeah. it's gonna be counterspell, it's gonna be anti-magic field, but the thing that's gonna scare them the most is he's going to start dispelling magic on their magic items. Fuck me. Have you uh the the beauty of the the only good thing of three five was just the insane number of classes. Uh and you were talking about a class in three five. Yeah. The Forsaker class. Yeah. And that was the most brutal. That was a it was a most brutal class because you know, oh, you take a magic item, you dispel the magic on it, and you disintegrate the item. 
And oh, by the way, now you have plus five to everything. Oh, that, God. The, that was uh, one of my sneaky old DM tricks is to go back to previous editions and find out what's sitting there for me to play with, what mechanics are there. Yeah. And uh, that that lieutenant is going to be a pain in the ass, but he's going to be a pain in the ass at level 12, 15, and 18, so that when he shows up standing beside the villain at level 20 in the final encounter, they know we got to kill this motherfucker quickly. Right. right? He's right. the primary target for round one. So, and that, that leads us very organically into uh, our five W's. You know, when you're talking about the final encounter, and it's a lot like talking about any sort of story. You use your your five W's to kind of outline and develop your story a little bit better, and you know who, what, when, where, etc. Okay, uh, I was th- I couldn't figure out the last two where I'm like whiskey, women, weapons. Those are no, those are your uh, your five W's for church. Um, gotcha. All right, and worship. That okay, that's a fourth. Worship, All right, that's the one. Uh, so, <laughs> and I guess the fifth is wine. There we go. I finished the joke. Wine warfare, however we want to do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of W words you plug in there that make it very interesting to any other religion. Um, but and each of these elements will kind of feed into other categories. They're not exactly all inherently clean, but uh, what you're talking about and the person we have up is the who. You know, and the who is not just the bad guy. Who is in this fight? Is it minions, lieutenants, party allies, are you know environmental hazards in the form of wandering monsters? How do they all factor into the fight? Uh, and how do you keep how do you keep the party as the focus of the heroes? It's uh, you know your final fight, unless you've you've crafted a very narcissistic and confident villain. If they're smart, they're not coming alone. They're not going to fight by themselves. Uh, they might start out fighting by themselves, but they're going to change their mind. Uh, and you know, a, a phenomenal example of your final fight scenes, especially for all of this, uh, is going to be uh, Avengers. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking that. Yeah, that final fight with Thanos. Okay, sure. It starts off Thanos, Thor, Captain America, and you know, Iron Man duking it out. By the end, uh, thousands of people are fighting in the back. You know, it's this grandiose scale, and you're bringing back the lieutenants who have already been killed, but you've got them back. And there are minions just dropping left and right, and there's fire raining from the sky. And man, that is a shit ton of work. That is a hour-long segment filled with memorable moments yeah for every single person in ways that like okay yes you walked out of that movie kind of exhausted (laughs) but you remember when captain america picked up the hammer yeah yeah there's any one of those moments in that final battle would have been its own final moment in a lesser movie right and they just kept stacking it and stacking it and stacking it and it's a great way to think about love or hate the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a great way to think about building a final encounter is consistently stacking and changing the you can move the goalposts as long as moving them is telegraphed and even on both sides. Right. Yes. And you create those layers. And again, as you said, uh, what, how, regardless of how you feel about Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're good at formulating a story. It may be a formulaic story, but it's effective. And it's a lot like a D&D campaign. It was this big, expansive, you know, 
hours and hours and hours and hours and individual stories, backstories, and they all come together. They all, and I mean, yeah, they do a phenomenal job. Um, so, uh, so the way that I would handle this, speaking of the who, and we're layering in lots and lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. The way that I handle this is uh, I treat the different factions, the different groups. If I've got this small squad of six guys over here and these two minotaurs over there, they're all layer actions. They go on initiative count 20 and those guys go on initiative count 15 and those guys go on initiative count 12 and those guys. And I will add them in before the session. I know the structure of when they're supposed to go. And then it's up to the players to roll initiative to find out where in this chaos they're going to find themselves. Right. And that way I can narrate the shit that happens. And I also have a pretty good idea of how it's going to go or how it would go if the heroes weren't there. Yeah. So I know the good guys lose without the heroes. So the heroes have got to interact. That's part of the social and the exploration pillars you we were talking yeah. about beforehand is They've got to throw a health potion to the general. They've got to they've got to stabilize the healer NPC. They've got to take out that lieutenant that's just murdering the soldiers, right? Like right. this is going to solve. And if they can do a certain number of things or in a specific order or only these special things or whatever, that's going to impact the story and the villain will react differently, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, and it's important to find the ways of which of these am I going to use as my as my uh, not exactly set pieces, but as my moments of the party is changing that yeah. versus you've got 25 villagers. He's got 25 minions. Don't even worry about it. They're now background. Yep. You can get out in the background. And if you win, the villagers win. And if you lose, the villagers lose. Don't don't worry about that. But I do like to roll it into initiative because it reminds me to describe the chaos yeah. that evolves as it goes, even though there's no agency yeah. and it, they're not factors on the chessboard. Right. It's it's still the description that needs to be consistently re-upped. And so I, I definitely make sure that I put that into initiative in my notes uh, so that I can touch on those, those moments because yeah, it's 50 people scrapping in the corner. But you can see that one of the minions is is using an axe and three quick chops to behead one of the villagers. And, and that feels real scary. It might mean the good guys are losing. The next round, the villagers fight back and light one of the minions on fire with a torch. And that means the, vill- the villagers are winning. And this is my narration to just kind of overall give the idea of what's happening in the background. So, yes. And, and that that is phenomenal and it works great and you can also use it to create your your time pressure oh there's there's you know 300 archers on the wall and they're mowing down the thousand orcs that are out there you notice one orc has a really big fucking backpack that has a a thing coming out of it that's sparking he's about 400 feet from the wall next round he's about 300 feet from the wall well this this is one of my favorite things to do is to put a uh ticking clock yeah. in the final encounter as well yeah and I, i've i've got a lot of thoughts about about this but let's move on to i think we've talked about who let's talk about what because the ticking clock i think is going to come when we get to when <laughs> yeah. um one one little plug i'll do on who is as we go through all of these you know think about it's very easy to focus on the combat you know who oh just the lieutenant just kill that guy and 
you know, your paladin's going to get off that fucking crit smite, and they're going to remember that. But with your who, uh, you know, you're talking about lieutenants, and you're talking about minions. How can you socially engineer and change that? And you know, I think I'd bring that up a little bit later. Or you're, you know, how can you just bypass it entirely with your environment, your your exploration person? But uh, just, sorry, just to add the my final thought for who as well is if you have the important person that needs to be rescued, that's the hostage. Uh, a lot of a lot of parties will kill the um, the lieutenant, and then the hostage is free to just stand there screaming in the cage or whatever till the combat's done. Yeah, but there needs to be that that ticking clock. They need to be escorted off the battlefield through the entire antechamber yes. into the next safe region. And so, giving your paladin or your fighter, uh, hey, at level seventeen, you have trained long enough. You now have the uh, defense fighting style. Now that person is going to escort, and yeah. that's very much you leading up and designing this final encounter sessions in advance. Yes, yes, and 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 shifting the entire narrative. You know, why was that person a hostage? They're obviously important to your villain. Okay, yeah. the tenant's been killed, and they've got the hostage. Hooray! The hostage is on the sidelines, being a cheerleader. No. The yep. villain wants that person. So now it is capture the flag or, it, you know, and you are trying to escape and yep. it is a chase scene. And now it's very different. But uh, yeah, so moving on. Especially, especially the, uh, the if I can't have her, no one will. Yeah. Right. And, so and bring up the crossbows. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the what? This one's a little more vague and it's really, it's kind of your your center of gravity as, as I would say in the military. But like what has enabled the party to fight the villain now. What was preventing them from fighting before? Uh, is there an item involved, a MacGuffin involved? Uh, and you know, the, the easiest answer is we needed to be stronger, we need to level up and whatever, or the prophecy said this is when we're gonna do it. Um, you know, what what stopped the villagers, if you will, from also doing this fight? You know, what is it? Uh, and for me, you know, a lot of the times we have some magical weapon or some magical item, and suddenly the story is about that item you know you could boil a lot of curse of strahd games down to the story of the sun sword i've seen it a lot yeah yeah uh and i you know personally i prefer access uh, i want the the item or the what to be we have found the the hole in the armor the way to get to the villain that nobody else could do uh maybe it's plot and vulnerability or or something else uh but just kind of what is it and you know then that kind of lines up with the when it's such an interesting thing because it's so campaign specific yeah about why now like the campaign builder for example they have to get to Mount Celestia to face off against Asmodeus. As soon as they get there, it's the fight, right? Yeah. It's it's the story of traveling to get there. Uh, in your campaign, spoiler alert, it's going to be uh, there's a narrow window of vulnerability, right, mm -hmm. for the villain. Uh, in my campaign, it is going to be the apocalypse is nigh. It's yeah. not. It's not that you couldn't do it before. It's that you don't have any other option after this to do it, right? right. So it is going to be very dependent upon the campaign and it and with Strahd, it's whenever the players want it to be right right so it does change and it depends on the campaign when you're thinking about setting up your final encounter it's important to know why not yesterday why not tomorrow yeah. right and it's not necessarily working out the when of it but working out 
the details is, as you say, this is under the what category because what details need to line up to get you to this point? What right. are the plot points that led us here? What are the doors that needed to open? And so when I, I've talked a lot on the, on the podcast about the idea of designing settings with like rooms within rooms and encounters are rooms within rooms, because it doesn't matter if it is a side of a road or inside a ship or on an open battlefield or in a castle your your battle will only have a limited space it can it can take place in right and your hazard is the thing that stops you physically that that gets in the character's way is going to be whatever the setting is whether it's the roiling ship or the crumbling castle walls or or the thunderstorm in the open field, like whatever it is, there's going to be an environmental thing. And so these pieces are different, but they're the same design factor, right? right? And so no matter what, you're playing within a room, but you always have to enter through one door and leave through another. When we get to this room, the final encounter, what were the doors we had to get through to get here, right? right. And so I'll it's it's so important to, to identify those leading up. It's, it's almost how did the what create the when yes yeah so um and, and, and it'll create the where as well right it'll, it it can create yes it, yes absolutely and you know if if you plan it right uh you can use the what as it influences the when and the where as a powerful pacing tool because i know a lot of problems i see with uh you know uh, i think a, an overarching problem with published campaigns is when you think about it logically, there is no reason whatsoever to do a side quest because you don't have time. And to, to get out of re referencing, uh, you know, Curse of Strahd, Storm King's Thunder, hey, the giants are going to kill everybody. We don't know when. We don't know how. The stone giants are going to commit genocide everywhere near them. The settlements are under attack from ice giants. We have to figure this shit out now. So I'm not worried about catching your fucking trout or whatever it is to to help you in your little village. I need to figure out this giant shit. Or, uh, you know, Lost Minds of Fendelver. I think I complained about this on the last episode. Gundren, the guy you're chasing, went missing 12 hours ago. You got to fucking find him. Like, start start running in the direction of the tracks. There is no reason for him to be alive six weeks later at the end of the campaign. So this was this was Terry's big complaint about uh, the rise of Tiamat. We just released the legend lore on that on the Patreon. Um, and his big complaint was that in order for you to do the final things, you have got to talk to the Lords of Waterdeep and get on their good side. There are all sorts of different minor things that you can do to get on their good side. And depending on which Lord it is, you're going to get them to like you in different ways. And there's a whole chart for tracking who, which factions like you and what Lords like you and the whole damn thing. Tiamat is getting raised. What the yeah. fuck are we doing yeah. talking to this, other people? This sounds like misinformation spread by Tiamat's cult to buy them time. Yep. And so that's why, uh, if I can be honest, and I'm, I'm going to rant about this in, in future episodes, especially the campaign builder. Good. When you hit tier four specifically, um, but really the last four sessions of any campaign, you have to be focused. It it It's wrap up the loose ends that are still out there, unless they're going to directly come back into play right. before the final session. But like, it's time before the end. When you hit level 19, wrap it all up yeah, yeah because it should be a out of control minecart to the right. end so so if you're if you want to use the what 
as it's got to be at the full moon. It's got to be the soul, the planetary alignment, the whatever. You can kind of create a little buffer of time in their minds, and then yeah. they forget about it. And so you can use that as a pacing strategy. But uh, yeah, so so the what, as we said, sets up the when. And so why why is this moment the right time for the fight? And not exactly in line with the what. This is where you get into kind of two options. You have it's the villain's choice. Hey. I, I, the villain, have decided this is when I'm going to fucking end you. Uh, or the parties made the choice. And I mean, they have their pros and their cons. And honestly, you need to be as a DM set up to do both, either at the end of a campaign. I mean, if your players are being that big of an obvious threat and a thorn, your villain's going to make a decision at some point to get involved to stop this. Uh, and that fight is going to be it's going to be more difficult for the players, because they're probably going to be caught unawares. Uh, it's easier to explain because the villain's making the choice, but then they have the advantage of planning. Uh, they they themselves are you know more easily exposed to the party, but they can set up an, an unbeatable trap. So it's it's a bit risky if you're talking about wanting the party to win, and it's a bit risky if you're trying to create a situation in which the villain can't get away. Um, if, if I can be perfectly honest, I think it being the villain's choice needs to be the second last memorable set piece because it should be them sending their trusted general out to do this infallible trap because yeah. then the general fails and dies. If you have a party villain or, or a, a campaign arch nemesis, yeah. they need lair actions. They just need them. Like you yeah. need to go fight them in their lair. And yes. unless they're strawed inviting you to dinner, it's real hard for that to be the villain's choice about when that happens. Right? right. So they should try to pull the trigger on it in advance with the assumption that, hey, I have now killed these guys. I can move forward with my plan. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the, you know, and the flip side of that is then your party's choice, which is pretty much the typical uh, ending of a campaign. You know, the party has... God, I hope they spent some fucking time planning. Um, they didn't, but they had time to. So, uh, or, you know, the prophecy said it's going to be here at this time. And so they know to go there. And so they may surprise the villain. Uh, it can be harder to execute because presumably your villain knows what's going on. I think in a previous episode, you said after like level 12 or 13, they're being scried on, period. I mean, yeah. just, yeah. Um, but then your players actually have a whole list of options they can come up with, uh, which fall loosely under the hijinks and stupid ideas category. Uh, but again, makes the, the, if we go back to the earlier uh, supposition of we want them to feel involved to create a memorable experience, well then sure, when they're building that fucking catapult and they're putting their Liam's tiny hut on the scoop and they're firing it in through the window of the castle, they're gonna remember that. Yeah. You know, that's the shit they get involved in. Um, so it requires flexibility on your part, but gives a lot more agency to the players. It should, when it comes down to, look, look, I have some very, let's call them creative people at my table who like yeah. to come up with, with unorthodox methods of doing things. And I will look them square in the eye and tell them, what makes you think that this would fucking work? Mm -hmm. And that usually makes them stop because they've been so lost in their own head about, well, if I cast this spell on this item and then I'm holding this item in my left hand and with my right hand, I get, and I'm sitting there going, there are goblins in the fucking room. What are you doing? Right? right. And so it's it's that kind of shit. But when it comes to this level of strategy, this and and 
Tyler and I just talked about this on the campaign builder too, actually. The idea of of non-combat sessions and strategy sessions and and giving the the agency to the players to just figure it out on their own. Mm-hmm. Once they've done it, no matter how dumb it is, it will always be, or how smart it is. Does it work? Yes, but mm-hmm. always, right? Mm-hmm. Because they need to get in that door to that room and then find out what the challenge is because they've been scried on. Their their plan, the enemy knows their plan. They may not know all the details of it. They might have been able to hide certain portions of it. They might not know where that Lehman Sunny Hut is going to land inside the castle, uh, but they've got a pretty good idea. I'm going to make them roll a D8 to find out what direction, north, northeast, east, yeah. southeast, east, south, right? Like where are they going to land compared to where they're aiming for? But uh but no, for for the most part, let them do their shit. Let them get it out of the way. Let that let them be geniuses. They're right. idiot savants, but they're geniuses in their own ways. And you know, I, I touch on this later when I talk about uh, cheating. You know, your, your prep work for the final fight and how you cheat for it. Um, yeah, be uh, encouraging that planning session, allowing that planning session, as answering any question and and giving them the realm of possibility and expanding the realm of possibility so it make things feasible is is you know it makes them feel better about what they're doing and that's a great place to interject with well have you thought about how your social people can you go talk to some people can you set up some armies can you do blah blah what about the environment and you kind of keep putting it into that uh all pillars so everybody can participate i usually obfuscate that a little bit by by making it a npc that suggests it yeah. kind of an obtuse way. Yes. Yes. Um, and then letting them come to the conclusion, right? Do we not have any allies? Oh, we got this guy and this guy. Oh, yeah, let's go talk to them. I can do that for you. And then the NPC fucks off so they don't have to, uh, right? I sometimes have my players go through so many NPC meat shields that they just have numbers for names at that point. And so it's a little difficult uh, if they haven't had somebody with them for a minute. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you can get that NPC to interject, um, you know, that that ally they made 20 sessions ago who has been doing a little work in the background and just thinking about it. Yes, absolutely. Um, if you've got too many NPCs, it's not inconceivable to have your villain have an army that needs to be distracted. Right. Yeah. So yeah. just just meet it with like numbers. And, and that gets into scaling. Yes. You know, how do you how do you scale the fight uh, and kind of prepare? Um, I will. Oh. I hope people have been listening to the campaign builder because that. It, we're literally talking about warfare and magical warfare and strategy sessions and shit right now, right? No, so, I, I need to get back into it, but we had talked about that at the dinner uh, a couple of months ago, of the, yeah. the difficulty of taking what is essentially a skirmish combat game with social and exploration elements and turning it into large-scale warfare. Uh, God, just that's, yeah. But So where, where are these armies going to be? You know, and that brings us to where... Uh, and it's kind of similar to the party choice, villain choice, you know, was the location chosen by the villain or the party? And if so, why here? And does that introduce layer actions, uh, introduce traps by the players, uh, accessibility or escapability, both by the player and the villain? Um, I, I want to add an extra dimension to this because everything you're talking about is great. But the other thing that needs to happen is how does this location change during the encounter, right? There needs to be, and maybe the location just feels smaller because more people come in. 
maybe the roof gets blown off and you have open sky now. But like there needs to be an environmental factor, whether it is the wall, the high walls suddenly become dangerous because archers are on it now. After round three, the archers have been summoned, right? The nature of the battlefield needs to change partway through or immediately after, or it may be because of the scrying, maybe beforehand. It's not what they expect. Well, to add to that, when you're talking about the where, it's how many wares are you talking about? Does your villain fall back to another room that they have prepared? Do they have another place they want to go? Uh, you know, have they created multiple stages of this fight themselves? Always, 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 absolutely, always, always. And so when you're but when you're talking about um, when the party sets the fight, when the party sets the stage, encouraging them to have their backup plan. But then your villain should be intelligent. I don't care what your villain is. I don't care what their fucking stat block actually says. Your villain should be the super genius evil villain because presumably they are a large scale threat. You know, they're smart. And so they should be able to look at the battlefield and say, oh, okay, this tall thing is their most important thing because that's where their caster and their rogue are sitting shooting at me. I'm blowing up the fucking high ground. I'm not taking that away. Even a Tarask or a purple worm, they are going to just innately, instinctually understand the nature of the battlefield around them. Fire, bad, I can dig... uh, I, I avoid these areas for these reasons, right? They will right. know the difference between land and sea. Yep. No creature is that dumb. Even plants will know how to use their environment because every living creature knows how to when to attack and when to retreat, right? Right. And so speaking of retreating, and this is, I think, a very interesting question to try and answer from the villain's perspective. Why is this the last stand? Because it's to the death. Right. But, you know, Dr. Evil yeah. always had a fucking escape pod. I'm not fighting to the death. You're fighting to the death. I'm leaving and I'm fucking detonating the volcano. I'm coming back later, you know, and your, your good villains always get away. Right. And so this becomes a very hard question to answer. Why are why is the villain fighting to the death? Why aren't they just sending wave after wave of lackeys while they calmly escape? Why don't they have an escape plan built in? Uh, why do they even let themselves get into dire straits? Um, it, it's interesting. My answer, and I just threw this out to my party about four sessions ago. They know that the Arch Lich that they're going to have to fight at level 19, so not the big, big bad, but one of the main generals. Pretty goddamn close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is um, cloning themselves and is willing to just burn through bodies. So mm-hmm. one of the things that they've got to do before they kill this this enemy is destroy the clones. Yeah. Right? And so I'm just using this as an example because one of the objectives should be cut off the escape plan. Yes. And don't let the villain know. So writing that down. <laughs> Having these objectives, I think about Curse of Strahd because it's the one that most people play. And I think right. about his whole castle and most people just beeline right for him. Right. When we played through it, we did just zip through that campaign. However, one of the things that we did do was take the time to explore the castle to make sure that we got everything there first. Right. That meant that we had three separate groups. We split the party before we all came together for the final battle because we had objectives. There were people to rescue. There were uh, escape routes to cut off. There were items to get. 
there were all of these, when you think about the session before the final encounter, or if you're playing for 10 hours, the final encounter is four hours long. What are you doing for the first six, right? And the, the entire thing should be sieging this location. What are you doing to shape the fire? You know, uh, we call that shaping fires. What yeah. are you doing? Why are you shooting it to sh to enable your final objectives? So what what are you doing to shape this? Um, and you know, Cursor Straw is a great is a uh, you know phenomenal example in most things of this because here's why does Straw fight to the end? I didn't fucking have to. Yep. I mean, I'm going to turn into mist. But oh, your party has shown up my at my castle and you pissed me off. I'm immortal. I've been here for 700 years. I'm going to turn into a bat. I'm going to fly into the woods where all the mists are. I'm going to give it about a year and you're going to be dead. Yeah. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I'm immortal. Why do I care? Um, sometimes the answer is just ego. Some, yes. Sometimes, like I think in your campaign, uh, it's going to be because I am so close to getting what I want. Yes. I've waited for so fucking long. Now is the time. It's it's greed that gets me, not yeah. pride, right? So so the four yes, and that's that's my fourth reason. But some of the common reasons I've seen are, you know, one, the party's just so goddamn annoying. They've been so annoying to the villain that the villain decides that's it. I'm going to do this once and for all. And then they kind of get in over their head and they can't run for a reason. Uh, you know, to pull it back to movie references, this is the Lord Marshal fighting Riddick at the end of Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah. He's going to make a statement. You've pissed me off. You've caused me problems. I'm going to kill you in front of all these people to show what a big, strong man I am. And I can't run away because of cultural reasons. That was uh, the end of Braveheart. That was the end of Braveheart. That was, uh, that's the Fade Ratha and, uh, you know, Paul Atreides fight. Mm -hmm. It's a, I'm, I'm making a statement and fuck, I, you know, uh, I, I, this was a calculated attempt and man, I'm bad at math. You know, um, <laughs> yep. And that kind of feeds also into the the other reason the villain finds themselves in a situation where, due to some sort of pressure, they can't run away. Their culture prevents them from fighting. They can't. They they refuse to show weakness, or maybe uh, you know any other reason where they have decided external pressure they're going to fight. Um, third would be the party has somehow cornered the villain, possibly through some sort of magical or technological means, and the villain literally cannot escape. And then I think probably the 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 one I'm going to lean on the most, and I think makes the most sense uh, when you're talking about these these super villains, if you will, the party is being a threat to something of the villains that they will stop at nothing to get back, or they'll, they'll they will not stop until they get it back. I mean, an item, a person, uh, a ceremony, a ritual, just the execution of something—it's an obsession, and so by threatening that, interrupting it, you know, the villain has no choice but to address it right now. That's your hostage scenario you were talking about earlier. Hey, we've got Irina, and Irina is the only thing Strahd cares about. He will fight to the death to get this back. Um, Honestly, it comes down to, uh, in my opinion, there's only five things that'll actually push your villain to this level of obsession. Uh, it's pride, greed, wrath, love, and power. Ass, love, and power. Any one of these things, and it doesn't have to be romantic love. It can be, I mean, like... Strahd's was, but it could be the love of my children. It can be the love of my land, right? The, the, this was my kingdom and, and I am their hero, right? It can be, that's kind of pride as well, but it can very much be about, you can't take this from me. I need it. Right. And it's, it's holding on to the thing that they have instead of the greed 
the thing that they want, right? And it's it's hard. It's it's a it's a difficult needle to thread because when you're talking about you know again a super villain, somebody who has plans within plans, plots within plots, you know, uh, an enigma wrapped in an enema, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's just a good Friday night, man. That's a good Friday night, yeah. Uh, but it takes a lot of prep work, just like the good final fight. Or it's gonna get messy. It's going to get, or it's going to be a different kind of final fight. You're, you're fighting for your life, um, but presumably they have encountered something in the past where they've had to overcome their pride, they've had to overcome their greed. You know, they're they're they've had to stay their wrath, and so you've got to push it so that they give up that self preservation. You know, I think that this we've talked who, what, when, where, why because that's the order we're taught it in school. But yeah. if I can be honest, why needs to come first? Because it is going to right. dictate who is there, what the things are that that got us to this point, where we are, and when. Right? I mean, why needs to be its entire separate category. Why is the driving factor uh, basically of your campaign? Mm -hmm. All of the other stuff is it boils down more to tactics. This is the this is a defining characteristic of your villain. And when you're talking, okay, my villain, what are their motivations? Why are they doing things? The why that they don't run away, why do they fight to the death here, really is that like quintessential who they are. It needs to be tied in. Okay, I will say this. The domains of dread leave a lot to be desired, as we talked about at length the last time that we did an episode. Uh, and we're, I'm not going to retread that, but I will say this. They gave a motivation to every uh, Dark Lord. And those motivations, while they weren't necessarily thoroughly fleshed out, they were complex enough to be engaging that I can work with them. Right. Yes. Every one of them, the villains themselves, I did not have a complaint about. I wanted more for them, but their base design in and of themselves, interesting, unique, different motivations. And their yeah. methods were different. And so I will say the why was probably the best thought out part of it because it dictated what the domain of dread ended up being. Right. It wasn't just who it is, but why they are the way they are, what they want and why they want it. And then this domain, you know, creates itself around them as a prison. Yeah, that it not necessarily that the desire was so dark, but their execution of obtaining that desire. Yeah. And their obsession showed, okay, this being's too dangerous. Uh yeah. Yeah. So yes, the the why should have been first. Uh, but you're right, school got me. My uh, oh no, no, no. I think this is the way that we need to think about it when we're designing, is we think about when when look, I'll tell you, when I first came up with what I wanted to do for this campaign that I'm doing now, I'm like, well, we're gonna fight the goddess of death. Right. That was the very first thing. It was the who. Right. And then, but my next thing was why? And it's because she's destroying reality. Right. And then it put everything else in line about where am I going to have this? When yeah. is it going to be? It's going to be on the cusp of the apocalypse in her own temple, floating above the final world that and... she's destroyed everything else. So, like, I'm building to this, but that why was so important. And, and... The, sorry, the one thing that I learned as an actor because I did it for years and years and years, was the root of the thing is never the thing itself. The thing mm. itself being, I want Irina for Strahd. That's the thing, but that's not the root of the thing. The root of the thing is, I am lonely. Why yeah. is that? I killed everyone else. Why is that? Because I was never good enough in my parents' eyes, and everyone loved my brother more than me. Yes. Why is that? Well, because I went off to war. 
And when the longer you dig at this, the more sympathetic your your villain becomes. Always ask why until you start to, to hit a circle. And when you start to go cyclical, then you're done. You know what your answer is, right? But keep asking why. And having those those uh, iterations of why and thinking about them and having answers, even if they never come up in the game, even if your players never even speak to the bad guy, it still helps you design how they're going to react, how they're going to you know interact with their lieutenants, what they're going to do in such an organic and natural way that it feels like, you know, hey, this is a real character. This is not just a one facet thing. Um, yeah. So, but what, once you have the why, and then once we have the pieces, who they are, what they're doing, when right. they're doing it, where they're doing it, now you need the tactics. <laughs> and yeah. this is where you zoom out and become a game designer again and start, you stop being a writer and you start being a dungeon master, right? It's, it's, it's so difficult to balance the science and the art. Yes. So, um, speaking of tactics, now we're getting into the, the how. And I'm just going to keep hammering. The how here is is not just how are they going to win the fight. It's how do you include all three pillars? And it's it's important to do that. Like I said, to, you know, everybody gets a hand on the ball. Everybody feels involved. It makes it memorable. But you really got to think about it because it is so easy just to slip into it's going to be combat and the combat-focused characters are going to shine. You know, that paladin is going to land that critical smite and they're going to do fuck all half you know your your bad guy's health in one shot your rogue is going to land that huge critical sneak attack and these are going to be huge moments for them but they're you know back to our shaping fires there's so many things that everybody else can do to truly influence and shape the final battle in meaningful ways and we have to find ways to encourage and exploit that uh so you know we we don't have to focus on combat for like for you know exploration how are you using the environment to bring that to the front? Uh, are they bypassing security? Are they bypassing traps? Are they creating ambushes to snare the villain or the lieutenants? Uh, or are they creating access to the villain in a way that the other characters can't? Or are they the only ones uh, that are able to chase down the villain when they're running away? What about your escape plan? Hey, you've killed the villain and the volcano's going off. That fighter's, you know, 15 fucking attacks. You're not going to help you against that lava. You got to get out. Uh, So uh, finding ways to do that, finding ways, and then, you know, as well for the social, um, which can be just as tricky as the exploration pillar. Uh, Arguably, when you get to the final fight, you know, the time for talking is over. Um, But it is the time for monologuing. Now is the time for monologuing. Or if you can pull it off monologue well before the final fight so that your players don't even know you're doing it. And then when the final fight shows up, they don't have a chance to interrupt. That's I, I did that with uh, my Strahd campaign. He monologued at the dinner. They were surrounded by his lieutenants. They knew they would die if they did anything right then and there. And in the final fight, they walked in the room and he unsheathed the sword, saluted, and attacked. And they did not expect that. Um, but, you know... Social can be just as important for your final fight into shaping it in ways that can make the the encounter so much easier. Because you're talking about not just influencing friendly NPCs who could be coerced into fighting and creating that army. You're talking about influencing the villains, minions, and their lieutenants. And you can do that before the fight and you can do it during the fight. You know, if the fight looks like it's going bad for the villain, hey, Vako, you want to come in and kill this guy for me? Oh, okay, that's going to set up my killing blow. Um, 
and, you know, my favorite example is is Starscream. It didn't take much to convince Starscream to turn on Megatron. No. Not not much at all. And that is what your lieutenants are going to be like because they're presumably also evil. And yeah, you'll have a few zealots, but uh, you're going to have a lot of very self-serving, you know, uh, self-serving, very egotistical individuals who think they can do it better, who will cut a deal with you. They see killing the boss as a prudent career move. And yeah, get get your social people involved in that so that they can make it easier in the final fight. They can shape it. And when you're thinking about the exploration of the social, it really just broadens this. It, it makes your room bigger, like you were saying. It broadens the scope of it. Your social stuff is going to happen days, weeks, months in advance, depending on how you, you know, plant those seeds of massage. Exploration can take place right before the fight and right after the fight as you're trying to get out or get in. Um, and, you know, when you're thinking about these things, keep referencing movies. Uh, it, the first blush would be that your social stuff isn't as memorable. You know, you, you remember the fight scenes in Avengers, but by the flip side, I don't remember the individual fight pieces necessarily in Braveheart or Gladiator. I mean, the, the groups of people running at each other, okay. But you remember the speeches. You it's remember so the movie that I think about the most for that is Independence Day. Yes. Yes, yes. You don't remember each of the individual, you know, Fox 3, Fox 4 going off, but you remember the president's speech. Yeah, yeah, remember that. And uh, if I can be perfectly honest, a lot of the stuff can be set up ahead of time, but there should be there should be crosstalk in every fight, right? And I think that this is one of the most mismanaged parts of Dungeons and Dragons in the first place, because most people spend all their time looking at their spell list or flipping through, you know, spell cards or looking at how many times have I raged yet today? Do, do I have enough for the rest of this? If I get knocked out of my rage once, like they're, they're counting health potions or they're leaning over going, if you go left, then I can go right over here. Say it in, say it in game, say it, the way that when you see them fight the cave troll in in Moria, yes, they are talking and shouting and interacting with each other that entire combat, and it is chaotic and wild and fantastic. And so to have some lieutenants uh, for the villains uh, swapping sides halfway through and then maybe swapping back, if there are betrayals on both sides, or if you just have npcs that are allies screaming for different help right it's this is the social interactions they don't have to be deep it doesn't have to be a monologue although i like it to be it doesn't need the villain to sit there at the beginning of each one of their turns and get off four more personal lines to attack the character of of one of the one of the players you you don't have to do that it's fun but having three different NPCs screaming for help or we need a medic at the same time and you only have one cleric in the party, that is a social encounter. And now the players are yelling at each other across the table on their turns before it gets back to the cleric, right? So yeah. this is where we should be thinking about this three-dimensional um, game design. When it comes to the exploration pillar, we it's real easy. You have highs and lows. You have barriers. You have difficult terrain. You've got movement speeds. Uh, there's light and darkness and um, and visual barriers. 
Don't forget, exploration and social and combat are all affected by the silence spell. Mm -hmm. Anti-magic fields, bubbles of darkness, and bubbles of silence. If they're all moving around with a couple of stinking clouds, the whole game is going to be radically different as people are positioning themselves defensively so they can continue to attack, right? And I've seen it before where, you know, when you're talking large scale stuff, where the the dungeon master really enabled the exploration focused characters by allowing them to expand their skills to apply to the rest of their group. You know, suddenly that that ranger has 50 people that are all using Pass Without Trace. Oh, okay. And now they're behind enemy lines. Yeah. Okay, that's a big changer. Um, that's going to also be really useful when we think about the Paladin Auras or the Twilight mm-hmm. Cleric's temporary hit point radius that they got to stay within 30 feet of everybody. When I start to see my players casting area of effect spells on their own guys for positive boosts and boons, this is an indication for me to have a large battlefield with many things happening spread out so that this is going to be an untenable goal to stay together. You're not going to be able to do it. Uh, This ultimately uh, is what killed half of my party in the false hydra encounter mm-hmm. because they were relying on their twilight cleric so much they forgot how squishy they really were and when they got outside of the 30 feet it fucked them up badly now yeah. they were level five so it doesn't take much to fuck up a level five party right. at level 20 though they are going to get their bell rung and be like oh shit i better go back you get a couple of warning shots right yeah yeah they, they, they've got enough health and armor that oh okay i can and hopefully at that point they've retreated once or twice from a fight (laughs) yep hopefully and i mean you could almost feed that back in earlier to our conversation uh you know why now if it's going bad for the party why are they not running away but um you know we can find we can find so many individual examples of you know how to shine a light on the social how to shine a light on the expert exploration but really you know when you're doing this it's just thinking about it at all yeah you know i thought about it at all that's already put me a step ahead uh and now i'm going to try and find that you know exploration they're getting over that wall they're getting to that lever they're going up to the thing nobody else can reach social they're having that conversation with the lieutenant mid-fight and i'm saying okay everybody figure out what you're gonna do on your turn you bard what are you saying to them you know here's your five seconds and giving them that spotlight the last thing I want to say before we move on, just yeah. as I'm thinking about rooms and environment and social and all this, you've seen the movie uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with long Kevin Costner. Costner. Yeah, it's been a long time. So so the final fight, you should go back and rewatch it. It is just pure 90s. It is beautiful. But um, the final fight in it has Robin Hood unable to get into the door to save Maid Marian because the Sheriff of Nottingham is... They don't say it outright, but is about to sexually assault her, right? Yeah. And so, like, the, the ticking clock is right there. So what he does yeah. is he swings in through a window. No one else can do that. Only him, because he has the guts, right, to be able to, to do this. And when he does, it ruins the, the banner that he swings in on, so no one else is coming. You can hear the allies and the enemies banging on the doors trying to get in, but they're barricaded. And it forces the Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood into being stuck in one room 
And that's it. That's all the reason they need to have this be a fight to the death is we can't coexist in this space together and there's no way out. If either of us takes the time to unbarricade the door, the other person will murder them. I, I can't turn my back. Yep. And so that's that's just it. We are trapped in here together. Yeah. Let's do this, right? And sometimes that's all I need. Now, I would probably keep this because that's pretty solidly engineered with the portcullis or a magical barrier or something in D&D. So I'm going to use this for a lesser lieutenant or general or something just to have this moment. But that way I'm not doubling up my my rooms over and over and over again for boss battles, right? So, so speaking of rooms, uh, when you do your final fight, do you do, and these are, you know, questions, uh, do you do it in multiple stages or multiple, you know, layers, multiple rooms? Uh, and how do you do that? Do you have your characters fight through a wave of minions to kind of burn down some of the resources before they get to the boss? Does the boss have multiple forms they're going through? Um, and, you know, for me, it's, it's sort of a combination of both, but really I like the multiple forms to a boss. Uh, and I, I like to do different stages, not just because, you know, this form of the boss will be martial. And so I'll really focus on the martial guys where this will be ranged and spell casting. So it'll really be a, a duel between wizards. Um, it also, by doing that, gives my players a breather. Hey, they need five minutes to, you know, calm down from that fight, both in real life and in the game. Get in maybe a short rest, use some potions, whatever. Get ready for the next fight. I do it differently. Okay. I have them flee because the pressure is on. Mm. Right? When they retreat, you have to hunt them down now before they get away. And what this does is split the party. Yeah. It usually only splits them for a round or two. But it's enough that if the rogue runs out to go catch the villain getting away, the rest of the party is going to watch. The players will see and the characters will have no reason to know that the rogue is getting murdered in the back room. And this is the tension that brings us up to the we chased into the next room, found the rogue on death saves, healed him up. And, and the paladin and ranger kept moving forward with the cleric on back. Now the paladin and the ranger are the next ones to and this is the stages that that i continue on i like to do it particularly up a tower i just think that's fun instead of just room to room i will go level to level all the way up uh, but it also allows me to redesign what these rooms are so that we're doing it now in uh they've got to pass a booby trap or they've got a they've got a trigger the next environmental thing right so, and some and sometimes the villain is not going to retreat sometimes they're going to just like they're not going to escape they're just going to get a barrier up so they can finish their ritual or pull the lever to collapse the the entire castle if i'm going to die you're coming with me right like whatever it is so fleeing i, I love i i love fleeing fleeing is a phenomenal tactic to like you said split the party and set up an ambush my uh my absolute favorite moment in all of dnd that's me as a dm um we were playing curse of strahd they were in valakai uh they already had the sun sword so party had the sun sword they're in valakai and they woke up the vampire spawn in the coffin maker shop now i only did two vampire spawn because normally i think rules are written it's like five or six and that's going to murder a fucking party. Five or six CR, like six vampire spawn. I don't give a shit what you have. When you're level four, you're done. Um, so they were fighting. And yeah, like two rounds in, one of the vampire spawn 
ran away, scaled the wall, scaled the wall around the town, and went running for the woods because they'd seen the sun sword. And in my mind, you know, these are intelligent creatures. One of them's going to say, shit, that's fucking dangerous. We need to tell Strahd. We're going to go tell the boss that they've got a goddamn nuke. And so my rogue went chasing after the vampire spawn, and my rogue had the sun sword. And within, you know, a turn and a half, two turns, the vampire spawn and the rogue were now 120, 140 feet from the rest of the party who still had, who were fighting the other vampire spawn and had to deal with this fence. Oh, okay. So the vampire spawn turned and said, I'll, I'll take my chances and beat the rogue unconscious in about two turns. Yep. Yeah, they'll do that. They'll do that. Again, it's an intelligent creature. It took its chances. Um, and again, and like you said, the pressure is on because we're not supposed to metagame. Everybody's fucking metagame. They know that what's going on in the fight. They know the rogue just went down. Yeah. Got around to that vampire spawn's turn. And I, you know, okay, you know, talking to the rogue, you're you're in and out of unconsciousness. You're swimming. You see this thing leaning over you. You see the glint of its fangs. You see its claws extending as it's coming toward you. And you see it scoop up the sun sword and go dashing for the woods. Yep. My my table shit itself. <laughs> use that weapon. Because I told him, if this thing makes it to the fucking woods, it's gone. And then, you know, panic ensued. It erupted. But, I mean, yeah, that that choice of the, the monster, okay, I'm running away from the fight to set up a different kind of whim, can lead to chasing them down different stages where they want to fight. I don't want to fight in this room. I want to fight in that room. Or I'm going to go pop my potion. I'm going to go get my weapon. I'm going to go do whatever to, to escalate this fight into a different environment, a different variety. Um, yeah, that's just so, so much fun. Um, I also like setting up. So I tend not to do final form. Mm -hmm. I find that to be what my players are expecting. And when I started yeah. to see that kind of shit pop up in um, uh, Fizban's Treasury of Dragon, which had yeah. the Great Worm dies and then comes back. Oh, and mythic actions, yeah. Yeah, I went, neat mechanic, good for Great Worms. Yeah. I'm never going to use this. I don't like the, I'm dead, but I'm back. If anything, anytime that I bring someone back, I bring them back diminished. I kind of like the Voldemort method of you defeat him and then he his essence crawls away right to try again tomorrow when you kill the mind flayer an intellect devourer should pop out of its skull and scamper right like right it's that kind of shit that i like to do um because you thought it was over and you've used your big spells and that's that's my problem with with final counter design is you go in knowing that they've got legendary resistances and so you're not blowing your big shit at them right, right off the bat right so they're they're able to just succeed on saves three times so you're not going to do that or the rakshasa is just immune to level five and below spells right yeah. that kind of shit so you're already thinking about it and that means that you are strategically blowing up your big spell slots at the right time for the first part and that final form even more powerful and now you don't have your spells yeah. feels like a gotcha moment and i don't i don't necessarily like that so if i'm going to do that i'm going to have legend says that when a vampire dies or when a mummy lord dies or they have the opportunity to come back to do a whatever right so right so if you're going to do that you have to telegraph it 
that's why I like to go to multiple locations. Yeah. And that what I'm doing there is I'm not removing the character's agency. I'm removing the location that they thought they had figured out. I'm removing the allies that they've run away from. Right. And so I'm removing their, their resources, but not the absolutely necessary resources that they need to finish this, this encounter. Yeah. And it's also why I never, ever, ever set them up with level five exhaustion ever. I will take them to fourth level exhaustion and, but then make the, the saves so much easier and let, and they need to know that once they they hit fifth level exhaustion, they they need to get dragged out of there. Like this encounter is done because right. at fifth level you you can't do anything. You can't move. You right. can't. You have disadvantage on saves. That includes death saves. So you're fucked, right? If whatever it is hits you to sixth level exhaustion, you're dead. It's too much. I've removed their agency and I've removed the shit that they can control. So I guess a different way to think about the forms is not necessarily the boss has changed, you know, and now they're more powerful. It might be they've changed their tactics. Yes. I I realize as the boss, as the villain, I'm in over my head when I went in here to have some fun, you know, sword and board beating the shit. I'd be martial. I've taken a lot of damage. I'm going to start flying 100 feet above you and raining fireballs on you to finish the fight because I'm in a bad mode. You know, I'm, I'm hurt here. Um, but again, like you said earlier, your player should know that this is something they can do. Yes. Right. Yes. And so it's, it's that it's really the great worm tactic, the, the anime, my final form, the final fantasy Kefka version that yeah. I don't like, because unless you're going to let your players re up their resources, somehow get a 10 minute cat nap in. Right. The warlock spell slots back. It's not worth it, right? So you're going to have them. I aim to make it so that all of their spell slots are depleted, mm-hmm. but I don't do it early in the combat. That's not fair, right? I, I mean, I try not to, but we'll, you know. Oh shit! They'll they'll burn their level nine eight and both sevens by the time that they've walked through the door, knowing these chuckle fucks. But still, yeah, I I can't I. Then it's a hard fight already going in, and so I kind of know that. So I, I I tend to hold back. Um, Your party will uh, won't have a rogue in it, so they'll cast wish to unlock the door. That yeah, just there, like yeah, yeah. It's like um, <laughs> it was a pull door, not a push door. But here we are, right, right. <laughs> God. Um, so, so this is a little bit more of an esoteric question. Um, when you're developing your campaign and where it's going to end, do you plan for different routes with almost different levels of ending? So like, like when I, uh, when I do campaigns, I try to give my, my players, you know, here's two or three possible endings, bad ending, normal ending, good ending, but they're all different enough that you're going to end at a different level doing them. You know, the bad ending is the fast ending. It's the easy, cheap way out, but the long-term repercussions may be bad. The good ending is the much harder one, but the long-term repercussions are better, and they would end at different levels. Uh, And I, I do that because... Sometimes my players really enjoy the campaign and they want to just keep going and they want that completionist. Yeah, let's finish it off or uh, we're tired. and We want to start a book club. So uh, we still want to finish the campaign. How can we do it quickly? 
school will have a second prophecy reading, a second, uh, you know, uh, future telling session where you're given your three options, you pick a path, and that'll determine does this end in 10 sessions, 15 or 20? Uh, no, I don't do that. What I do instead is I look at it like, uh, can I end my campaign in a cathartic way mm -hmm. and by the end of this level within the next three sessions? Mm. And that so that's why I have that's why I dangle a lieutenant in front of them essentially at each tier. This is what you need to fight. This yeah. is what you need to do. Half of my players don't know this yet, but you know those those characters that died with the false hydra, their ghosts were being tortured by demogorgon. During a one shot, they they went and and negotiated and resurrected a handful of NPCs and one of the player characters. That could have been I had I've had that in my back pocket for a long time where they were just going to we need to wrap this up. They're going to go meet Demogorgon and he is going to offer them this trade. There's going to be a combat factor here. They're going to get to use their big ass spells and shit that they've collected at this point. They'll resurrect their friends and we'll learn what they need to learn to defeat the actual goddess of death. Mm. That's good enough. They can pass it on to the next characters. And then what we can do is roll up new characters, have a different kind of feel to it and drop it else somewhere in the world. Yeah. Now we have a new campaign. You and so campaign, but a new campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my, I'm lucky enough that my players are lifers. They're all going to be here and they're going to, they're going to continue playing D and D with me for a long time. And I, but I know that I thought the same thing when I had my players Jess and Jamie with me, right? And then they moved to Australia with three months' notice. Okay, cool. Three months, we play bi-weekly. I have six weeks, and we're off for two of them. Four sessions, I can do this, right? So I, they, they didn't, they were going to defeat the goddess of death. They didn't do it. What they yeah. managed to do was save all of the, the moment I knew that they were going to um, move away, and this was it. I had all of their beloved uh, NPCs that they've met. Anyone that had a name was kidnapped by the enemies as hostages. That's it. That's all we're doing. We're getting our friends back. And they all went out in a blaze of glory, defending everyone, getting their friends back, and then getting turned to stone, lost in time in case Jess and Jamie ever moved back. We could pick up the campaign again. Yeah. But it is cathartic. It is yeah. that moment of we got our victory in, and I'm comfortable ending it here. I think about it like Supernatural or um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or any of these shows. We defeat this big bad guy. We are not going to get the resolution of the overarching love story or did she ever get to become this or do that. But we defeated this bad guy by the end of the season. This is an okay place to end it. It's not the perfect end, but it's an okay end. And Good. so every I'm always four sessions away from my okay end. And every time that I add a new piece, they defeat the last thing. My next thing has to be four sessions away, right? It may take them 12. Right. It could take them four if I needed to do that. So uh, it, I, it's, it is a little more difficult than Domain of Dread. Absolutely it is. But I, I like that approach. And, you know, that's, I, I'm going to add that entirely separately to my session zero discussions what will it take for your character to retire and it could just be in a domain of dread a portal opens we get home you're always yeah. four sessions away from finding that portal right that yeah um because i mean i i'm trying to think about the number of times i've had a character just say i'm good i'm done and retire not many um 
I've done it three times. I've seen it done twice besides yeah. me. I, I'm quick to pull that trigger because yeah. I never get to be a player. So if I have the opportunity, I'm going to play as many fucking characters as yeah. I can. Yeah. Right? Hey, deal me in, deal me in. Another hand, another hand. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So no, do I do different routes of different level endings? No. Uh, but I do always have the escape hatch ready to go. Yeah. When Harry ended up leaving our campaign because life shit just got in the way and he yeah. couldn't do Sundays. So he joined us with our Tuesday with our evil campaign. I had to write his characters out. I, I just did. I had a whole plot line. He had a character that died and was going to come back as a ghost. He had another character that was there and just working his way into the system. I had to figure out how to do that with one session. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've had a couple of such situations where a player has just left the table and I've had their character and it's like, okay, how do I, where do they go now? Um, but so, and <laughs> talking about portals or any other sort of narrative device, you know, gets you into the discussion of the uh, a MacGuffin. And I guess I don't fully understand exactly what a MacGuffin is. I know it's just sort of the plot device. Um, a MacGuffin is an object that it doesn't matter what the object is. It matters what the effect is, and that effect will end a story. Okay. It's something that the players need to get. Yes. For example, the Infinity Stones were all MacGuffins. doesn't right. matter what they do. It matters the effect when they all get brought together. Right. And that's going to be how the, how the story ends is with this. Right. So that's a perfect example. Every Indiana Jones movie has a MacGuffin. Right. Yeah. Uh, so do you factor that into your final fight? Uh, <laughs> I have, I played in a very sandbox world. Uh, right. Traditionally, yes, I do. I have put 21 arch villains, 21 places of power where essentially the ley lines line up and 21 magic items that can change the course of history. I've littered them through the world and I've given them a world map. They don't know what all of these places are or what these things do. But in any given one of them, this is where you're going to find a villain, an item, or a location where something fucking crazy happens. Right. The last location that was fucking crazy, they ended up, the world did not have a moon, sun, or stars, and they accidentally created them. Oh. So just by completing a ritual trying to save themselves, they completed these things. And suddenly the world, moon, and stars appeared. And that had major consequences on the rest of the world. Everybody else uh, fell to their knees and started praying to gods, or had panic attacks, or killed themselves. Right? So yeah. So so as you as you would expect, um, and so my MacGuffins exist, but specifically to be used. And the idea here is that when they find a MacGuffin, I will give them the perfect time to use it. But but with yeah, sorry, it's not going to last the whole campaign. I don't let them do that. I let them get past the next lieutenant. And it's. It's not the thing that itself defeats the enemy. It's not the story of how you, you know, it's not the story of the thing. It's not the story of the ring. And then we chucked it into the volcano and then the, the story was over, you know. But the damn thing was, like, the ring is definitely a MacGuffin. But right. the damn thing was, that wasn't the end of the story. Frodo's right. story kept going. Sam's story kept going. Aragorn was then crowned, right? That wasn't the end of it. It just allowed us to get to the last bit. And that's how I use my MacGuffins is going to be, and I've given them the rod of seven parts and they fucking used it. Right. And I gave them um, the Necronomicon and they've used it. And so I love giving out these huge magical things because it feels like a high magic world when you do that. Right. But it can't last for long. My favorite way to do this is to give them an impassable way forward that requires them to sacrifice this item 
but I've spoken my session zero with my party and I said, hey, for every single time that you use one of these super items, there will be another one on the horizon. Right. Not any one of them is the final key. Right. You guys are the final key. It's it's the story of the party, not yeah. the story of the thing. Uh, as much as it is the story of the thing, it's not the story of the thing. Um, okay, so to get into the kind of the, the tactics and the nuts and bolts as a DM, how do you prepare for the actual final fight? And kind of how do you cheat? You know, do you do you do a dry run? Do you listen to your players' tactics as they plan? Uh, you do a lot of pouring over character sheets. Like, what's your what's your approach? So the way that I do it is every once in a while I will ask for all of their passive skills so mm-hmm. that we know what they're how they're building their character. I don't need to know the attack. I know what their attacks are, what they lean on. Yeah. Um, because I see it in every fucking encounter, right? So players are unimaginative when it comes to combat. They will do the same thing. The moment they find something that works, they will beat that fucking nail to death, right? So yeah. um so I don't need to do that level of cheating. I kind of know what they're doing. I have a general idea of their average output just based on any single given encounter against a moderately difficult bad guy. Right. I also know how they're going to handle splitting the party. I, I know who my impulsive players are. If this was a one-shot level 20 encounter to defeat the evil wizard, yeah, I'll put some math into it. I'll do it behind the scenes. Yeah. I have literal months to learn this shit as I go, and so... I tend not to do any of that. When it comes to scrying on them, uh, what I like to do is figure out what my villain is up to and does he have time to scry at this point. The closer we get to the end game, the less time they have to to scry. So when they're coming up with plans at the table, I help them as NPCs as if the villain is not in the room. Right. And then I remind them that they have a private chat that does not have me in it. And they Mm -hmm. should finalize their shit before the next session, right? So that ideally the villain has some knowledge, but I'm not thinking of it through the villain's eyes. What I'm doing is I am hyper-focused on the ritual or the sacrifice or the execution or the setting up the gigantic machine in the correct order to pull the right levers. And my villain's a busy man. Yeah. Right. We've got shit to do. And these peons I've dispatched my general to take care of. I'm over here doing this. Let them come at me with everything that they have because I have already set up all of my contingency plans. My Mm -hmm. lair actions exist for a reason. My traps exist for a reason. The powers I wield exist for a reason. And I wield them and I have this scenario all set up so that I don't have to worry about them. And so then when my players show up and they surprise me, the DM... They surprised the villain as well. And it's beautiful. And it's chaotic and it's insane. So I tend not to to do it. I want to help them as as a person that's invested in the story, but only up to a point. And then I want them to go crazy from there. Um, But ultimately, I also need this fight to last 15 rounds if it's a final encounter, right? Maybe that's split up into into two seven-round fights, yeah. Right. But we need to be sitting in this for a few hours. It has to feel epic. And right. if it's over in three rounds, then it's over in 18 seconds. And that's yeah. not all right. Yes. Um, so I uh, similarly, I I do not listen to my players plans. I tell them to plan without me, take my headphones off, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll just sit and I guess look at my villains equipment list or whatever, you know, whatever it's supposed to do. And it's not your turn. Um, yeah. Exact same. I want to be surprised. 
and I don't want to have any information that would then necessarily affect how my villain would be prepared for them. And, you know, I'll answer questions. Uh, the flip side is, similar to your scrying, my villain has fought adventurers before. Yeah. They've seen fucking tactics before. And when when they are, you know, an undead, they've seen fucking undead hunters coming for them before. You know, my my vampire has killed seven Van Helsings before your Van Helsing has shown up. He's got a fucking idea what you're going to do. Um, yeah. And so I will I'll prepare their tactics in that. I'll prepare their methodology and I will I will look at my characters or my players character sheets just so I'm you know, I'm not necessarily entirely surprised, but also um I can make sure they don't get off that, oh, I cast Sunburst and did 400 fucking damage to your vampire in the first round and they're down. Okay, yeah, no. I'm And I play with, we don't, my, my, my bosses don't have hit points that actually matter. The hit points go down and that tells me when, okay, he's going to run away at this amount to go do something else, not, you know, he's going to, uh, by the, by the monster manual, die in three hits. Um, and I'll usually do a couple of dry runs. The monsters in the printed stack blocks are the average monsters. Right. My players, I power up. So they get to fight max hit points, maybe one or two AC higher, or an extra round of multi-attack, like an extra attack in the multi-attack. Or teleport is part of the movement. It's not part of, it doesn't cost an action. Right. right. This is how I get around that to make beefy creatures my villain my campaign villains don't have stat blocks mm. they have a list of shit they can do on their turn yeah because at this point i don't need to can they breathe air food and water i just know if they're already undead right yeah. can they fly how far can they go i just know because it's come up in the past that they can go 80 right. feet and around so i learn my villain as the campaign goes and then i have by then i have a list of shit for lair actions, for legendary actions, yes, I'll stat that shit out. Yeah. But for hit points, uh, I am brutally honest with my players uh, that I, I go way, way, way above for villains. Yeah. I'm not talking a matter of hundreds. I'm talking a matter of thousands because yeah. you are bringing an army with you and they've got to be able to take on an, a literal army of villagers. And the action economy in fifth edition is such that if you come at me with 400 men with bows, it does not matter what my AC is or what my hit points are. You yeah. will kill me before my turn. It, it, yes. And uh, I do very similar. You know, I, so I do dry runs to just check that math and make sure. But yeah, my, when I ran Strahd, uh, my party's average damage output between four people and uh, it, was, it was three characters and two NPCs at level 13 was like 140 damage around. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's two turns. Strahd's dead in two turns. Turn and a half. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I had to like, okay, I wanted this to go. All right. So Strahd needs to be doing, uh, I think in the end we went for six rounds, seven rounds uh, in the first fight. And it was a pretty even trade of Strahd had done 700 damage and he'd received about 750 um, between all their healing and all their damage. So, yeah, I'll I'll cheat like anybody's business because, you know, our small tangent, the CR in the books is so fucking wildly wrong after what? Eighth level, tenth. Um, the problem at that point is it stops being about should they fight this guy and it starts being about 
is this is an encounter with this leveled party going to end up in a situation where player character dies right and with those rules they're going strictly off of a d8 character as far as i can tell because i've tried to reverse engineer this and i can't figure it out but as far as i could tell they're aiming for a d8 character with about 17 ac yeah that is not at all how it fucking works right like there's way more shit going on here between the bounded accuracy and the action economy the game design if you're only looking at it from those two, from the x-axis and the y-axis, you are doing yourself a disservice. You're going to be surprised every time, right? So I agree with you 100%. The CR system is broken. I understand it. I know what they're trying to do. And they're right. A vampire will probably kill a level 15 character within this combat. Right. Probably not a level 16 character. Therefore, CR 15 but it's a vampire. There's no fucking way. <laughs> right. Uh, so so I have, I have two points on that. One, I always feel like when I'm looking at things, you know, because when I build a lot of my final encounters, all of my, you know, my bosses are usually uh, homebrew of some sort. So I turn to the Dungeon Master's Guide and I flip to the back where it talks about making your own monster. You know, okay, a CR should be in this table doing, have this much AC, have this kind of proficiency, have this kind of attack, do this much damage. And it feels like they copy pasted that section out of a previous section and barely fucking looked at it or edited it because, you know, oh, okay, it can do this much damage. Here's this other table. If it regenerates, count it as this. Again, it, I, I think this is perfect yeah. for a one shot. Yes. But after after that is garbage. You know, they they don't mention layer actions at all in that section. Mm-hmm. Period. They don't mention legendary actions at all. And so you have to reverse engineer. Okay, well, maybe it's doing this much damage. And it's it's it is such a disservice when you try to say in a game of math, oh, okay, here's the math of how to do this. But we're not actually going to explain it. And by the way, it's completely fucking wrong. Um, I almost it, what I'm basically doing is instead of worrying about the CR of my monster, I'm reverse engineering the CR of my party. Hey, that level 13 group has a couple of plus two items and they've got a couple of this and a couple of that. So they're hitting above their weight class in the following ways. Their damage output is this and around. Their health is this. Their average AC is in this. That Okay. They're hitting four levels above. You know, my level 13 party went up against, you know, per the book, a CR 19 Strahd and still fucked him up. Uh, so yeah, it's, there should be a better way. And again, the action economy. All you need to do is add one, because I feel like it's balanced against a party of five. Yeah. Right? You add a sixth, or you you just boost it up so that they can do one extra thing on their turn, right? And and everything is radically different. If The moment you throw a sidekick in, you've imbalanced it, right? So They don't even have to be somebody who has an amazing weapon or amazing stat or abilities. Oh, okay. This person's going to have the help action. This person's going to try and trip them. They're just going to shove. You know, it's just little shit like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it like this. First of all, I always like to keep whatever my AC is uh, of my villain within about two points of the modifier plus 15. So so if my paladin and my ranger, they should all have roughly the same modifier, give or, one, give or take one or two, right? So if they're consistently rolling 24s, my AC needs to be 22 right? If it's 17, they're auto-hitting, right? right. So right. when I start to think about designing it, AC is one of the things that I will sit down and look real hard at beforehand. AC and uh, saves. These are the things that will determine 
whether or not my players are even effective or if they are just swinging and missing. They need to be able to hit, but they shouldn't hit often enough. It should feel hard. And hitting and doing less damage doesn't make it feel hard. You blame your dice. You don't blame the encounter. Missing, right. you blame the encounter, right? Yeah. So when it comes to uh, actually running the math on that, I look at my bounded accuracy really, really closely, and then I start to figure out what's the likelihood that they're going to roll above this however many times. I start to run a little bit of probability, but I don't do math. I estimate. I sit back and go, ah, four of seven should be able to hit, right? If it's four of the seven of them, and they're normally doing 140 around, that's when they're hitting. So what's roughly half of that, little over half? So they're going to do 80 around. They'll surprise me a couple of times, good, and they'll surprise me a couple of times, bad, right? And so if the combat lasts long enough, we know where we land. And then I look at what am I doing to them? Because the moment one of them goes down, all the math has changed, right? So in that, yeah, that that first person going down, especially who it is and how it happens, yeah, that'll everything's out the window at that point. You know, Always aim for the NPCs first because they have the smallest impact, and that's how and the and the villain will know I need to change the action economy. Mm-hmm. They won't know it in that headspace, but more enemies equals bad. So kill the little guys first. It's it's the uh, it's the credit card thing. You got fifteen credit cards. Pay off the one you can pay off as quickly as possible first. Get that out the door and just yeah yeah no I yeah. that's why I always try and have a handful of NPCs go with them because they provide me that meat shield balancing you know uh, act to uh, yeah, make sure my party wins or to try and help them win. Um, I should say I I like the idea of planning it out by the number of rounds as well. Yeah. I think that that's very very useful. Uh, knowing how long a round takes is going to be helpful as well for me as a dungeon master to plan. But I always err on the side of caution that I will end up not being able to. I don't want to get to ten o'clock and everybody's looking at their watches trying to go home, and I still have a hundred hit points to go through. Right. Right. So, so I really do try to aim for a five-hour session instead of a six because we play for six, and yeah. uh, and when I aim for a five, that gives them fuck around time. Right, right. Right. Whether it's bathroom or are you guys excited or hey, hold on, who has this in their backpack? Right, and everyone flips their pages. That that lets them do that, uh, and then I break it down by my rooms from there. So uh, I found it effective. I don't know if you do this as well. We the last session starts with the very you know the final fight starts at the beginning you know the the, the penultimate session ends with roll for initiative yeah, you're at the door here we he, are hey yeah. yeah he's seen you he said all right we're fucking doing this and he's drawn his sword roll for initiative this is happening uh so what i do actually is for my final session is i make it a double session i tell everybody i don't care man you're not going to church on this sunday we're, we're starting at 10 a.m Right. And we're going to play until four, have a dinner break, and then we're going to wrap it up at the final encounter. Like, yeah, I want because I need them to not sit there and look at their character sheet for the entire two weeks and then start to like plan with a full allotment of spell slots and full hit points and all their NPCs are there with them, fresh face and everything's great. No, they need to hit that door rough. And yeah. then when they kick it open, you know, they've been saving all of their big spells, which means they've been taking a beating, 
when they kick the door open, they should be almost out of health potions. They should have a couple of dents in the armor, and they've blown through some of their magical items at this point just to get here. And they come in, we'll break for two hours, so you have two hours to eat, have last-minute panic session planning, and uh, and feel that dread that you may lose. Right. That gives them tension. I don't want that tension to last two weeks, because they'll either think their way out of it, or it will become lessened somehow. So it will just fade because it was a memory. They don't remember what happened four rooms ago. Yeah. So I double session. So that's that's how I do it. But I agree. Like, there should be a breather before that door gets kicked in. If, if my sessions were long enough, I would absolutely do it. But I, I can barely keep people together for four hours. So yeah. again, I'm very much in a unique position there. But like, yeah. that's my and again, we play in person. And I think that's rare these days as well. And that's huge. That that really does, uh, you know, really keeps the intensity, keeps the interest instead of just, oh, turn the speaker up while I go make dinner. Uh, OK. Um, yeah. So. For my final encounter, now that we've talked about all of this, um, I'll answer some of my who, what, when, where, why, hows. Uh, so for those who hadn't heard before, uh, my final encounter is a mummy lord who is formerly a dragon turtle, who's been reduced in stature, you know, through her various uh, crimes against humanity, has been cursed. And so now ekes out her existence. Uh, she's a mummy lord, and her, her fortress is actually on the bloated rotting corpse of her former body that is now just this floating drifting dragon turtle island um so the fight is intended to take place where she keeps her hoard it is a large vault that itself is a massive cavern inside of her former body uh it is partially flooded creating a huge underground lake and her riches are haphazardly floating in the water they might have sunk to the bottom um her her lieutenants, her cult, uh, keep dumping tribute and riches into this space, hoping that maybe if they get enough hoard that she'll get her power back. And she has no connection to the hoard, just just for clarity's sake. And it's actually kind of a uh, pisses her off that, you know, it doesn't work. This is this is almost a, a barb and it, it furthers her own uh, paranoia that maybe her cult's actually fucking with her. Um, so uh, in this giant cavern, the ceiling is lined with uh, golden jewels. Uh, and it supports a large magical orrery, all of which recreates the night sky that the uh, that she knew as Dragon Turtle before being damned to the Dread Domain. Um, there's enough room on the lake to maneuver maybe 20 or so, 20-ish meter, 30-ish meter ships. Uh, and the centerpiece of the entire horde is a 35 or 40 uh, meter long jewel-encrusted metal recreation of a Dragon Turtle. So think a giant Dragon Turtle statue. Um, and it's capable actually of sailing around the sailing around in on the lake inside the island. And on the back of it is a uh, a large uh, compartment that she can store the four chambers of her former heart in. And these these the the four pieces of her heart are actually the things that need to be gathered up by the party. Because um, as a mummy lord, if you don't destroy her heart, she just keeps coming back. And so you need to get all four pieces together, recreate the heart, and then destroy that to actually kill her. Um, this can feed back into one of our earlier discussions. You know, how can I foreshadow? I can just have her go fight the party. And when they kill her, she just comes back. I mean, mummy lords are brutal like that. Um, so she already has one of the pieces of her heart in that compartment. Um, and she is actively looking for the other three, but they are out of her reach. And also in this lake, 
it's a small nesting ground of uh, sea serpents that transit in and out of the holes in the island uh, out into the open sea uh, through her rotten body. Um, now, the final fight is intended to take place during a magical ritual being performed uh, after she comes into possession of the other pieces of her heart. These are probably going to be provided by the party. The party will actually be the ones who are finding it, and they will be giving it to her as some sort of tribute or whatever. And that will create our our when and our where. Sorry, uh, I just I just want to pause you for a second here. For those of you that that don't remember, she needs to she needs to be returned to a mortal state. So they have to give her. It behooves them to give her the chamber, like the different parts of the heart, right? Yeah. So that we can kick off this battle, right? Yeah. So in some yeah. ways, the party is very much in control of when this takes place, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And so without that, she cannot be killed. That is a plot and vulnerability. Um, now, the when might also be, uh, you know, if they give it to, okay, well, when is the ritual? And so there's going to be a ritual that uh, is intended, uh, once she gets all the pieces, it's intended to transfer her consciousness into the dragon turtle statue, because she desperately wants to be a dragon turtle again. She was damned in the first place for trying to achieve immortality through something similar by transferring her consciousness into one of her children. Uh, and then during the transfer, she'll become vulnerable. Um, so the who is going to be uh, the Dark Lord herself, several of her lieutenants who are going to be some senior cult members, um, and potentially as an environmental hazard, maybe some of the young sea serpents. You know, the, the party has to get past them to get to her. Um, and then one of the uh, magical items, possibly the MacGuffin uh, here, the, the two pieces are going to be um, one of the items that they could possibly find are going to be uh, shipping the bottles, which are actually magical bottles or magical corks that will allow them to shrink down and contain full size ships. So they'll be able to smuggle in multiple ships uh, to aid them in their fight through the waters. Um, and the other will be so she sacrificed her son. And that's what caused her to be damned and go to the Dread Domains. Her son's soul is still in the Dread Domain. She's just never found it. I'm planning on giving the party essentially a turtle ship from uh, Spelljammer. The, the basically could be a submarine uh, turtle-shaped ship. Yeah. But it's going to be his corpse. It's going to be the, the preserved corpse of him, and they can get his soul back into it. And so it can kind of pilot itself. Um and I do all that because I really like the idea of when she's going to transfer consciousness, that's when the party interrupts the ritual. But part of it worked. And so that dragon turtle statue island kind of comes to life as a mindless beast and is attacking the party, attacking everything around it. And the party will have their own undead dragon turtle ship to fight it, kind of on a one for one. And so now there's this huge environmental hazard as... The party is fighting a mummy lord and her lieutenants from the backs of what is essentially Godzilla and Mecha Godzilla fighting it out. And so that's my, my I I fucking love that. So I have some thoughts about how to make this uh a little bit more. You've done a lot of the legwork on this. This sounds like it's a phenomenal end battle already. Couple of things that I would do um that I think will add another dimension to this, because what you don't have is a reason for the the party to panic yet and i came up with four the first one is um i think that she should hit hard 
I think you should aim for her to hit harder than anything else because a few sessions beforehand or maybe even five levels before, I'm assuming this is a level 20 encounter just because we might as well be up here designing for the level 20. But um, if if the party has run into shit, like um, they've given her or they've killed her and she's come back, there should be some comment, some way of them understanding that with dragon turtle talisman of made of this specific kind of magical bullshit, whatever, uh, that's tied to her becoming a mummy lord in the first place, and there's resurrection magic within it. And they should get their hands on this. And then it should get stolen from them. So that when your rogue ends up dying and gets tossed, their body gets tossed into the lake, mm -hmm. it lands on the thing, the, the, the talisman, whatever it is, of the resurrection magic to bring them back right because we have we've given ourselves an out from the very beginning to say hey you remember this thing that was going to be this awesome macguffin that you lost and never saw again you landed on it it brought you back it had to be submerged in salt water with a corpse or whatever and then you fell and so here you go this was your warning shot right so this is when you get your one use of power word kill off from your enemy and have the party shit themselves just for the rogue to slowly sink to the bottom of the lake and come back two, three rounds later. Full hit points, all the stuff that they need, here they are ready to go. And so, that's the, you slip a ninja note to the rogue saying, just hold on. Like when right. that person says, I'm dead in the second turn, they're fucking throwing their keyboard and they're like, fuck this. Yeah, yeah, you send them a message that says, on your count and initiative, tell me what your body is doing as it sinks to the bottom. Yeah. right and then and give me three rounds of this on the fourth round you're back right so um the next thing that i do and this is my favorite thing to do i mentioned it earlier is dispel magic having enemies with orbs i was i originally said wands or staves or rods but i like orbs because they're they can be a uh arcane focus as well that just suck up magic off of items and then just glow right mm -hmm. so Part of what she needs for her ritual is a certain amount of magic. If you if you establish this early of her lieutenants or every captain has one of these that gets loaded up four or five times from enough magical whatever, or maybe it needs to load up to a maximum count of 15, and the spell slot that it gets is count like it's a second level spell, bang, that's two towards the 15. When it's full, they report back to her and load up the ritual, right? We've established this early so that during the fight, the players know these guys are going to dispel our magic. It's not enough to go in with one magic sword. We're going to go in with eight. So that actually fits perfectly because I'm looking at a mummy lord in uh, the, the monster manual, which if you haven't looked at a mummy lord, take a look at them. As a CR-15, they are a fucking brutal enemy. And they they break a lot of the, uh, the, the patterns with other uh, creatures, but... They've got a layer action. Initiative count 20. On the next round, any non-undead creature that tries to cast a spell fourth level or lower is racked with pain. If they try to cast the spell, they must pass a DC 16 constitution saving throw. And on a failed save, they take necrotic damage uh, per the level, 1d6 necrotic damage per level of spell, and the spell has no effect and is wasted. So I'll just upscale that a little bit. Oh, you want to, you know, sixth level and down. Take two d six per you know gets drained out of you and oh my god that hurts like so the very first I just want to go back to the undead series for a second because um, they talked about liches zombies and then mummies and those are the first three episodes Aserak and Vecna the 
the ladies ended up ranking as a nine and a 10 out of 10, as far as the scary factor goes. For some reason, they all latched on to an undead cockatrice as being real scary, but that's because they're all just scared of being paralyzed. And of course who isn't. The only other one in the first three episodes is worth mentioning at all is they were fucking terrified of a mummy lord because it is so fucky. There's so much shit to it. And I mean, you, you normally you look at legendary actions and most creatures get three and one's a movement, one's an attack and one is some sort of, you know, make a save against this. No, mummy lords get five. Yeah. You get five to choose from. And the, their, their layer action, uh, every undead in their layer can pinpoint the location of every non-undead within 120 feet. Okay, your rogue is gone. Like you're, you're, they, they are just so able to shut down a party from so mm-hmm. many aspects. And, you know, the only downside to them, and this goes back to our earlier conversation, 97 hit points. So that's why you just got to say, screw it, I'm going to play with the hit points. Yeah, but remember, you also are going to have all this other shit going on around. And so just adding distance or adding an anti-magic field, because that's going to fit this as well, right? Between, between, so like, they're casting, it's almost like the scene in um, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the second one, where the, the two ships are just swirling around the vortex, yes, shooting yes. at each other, where you've got this, this thing that no one can pass in the middle, this right. anti-magic field, and she's doing crazy shit, and your party's doing crazy shit, and they're just staring at each other across this void, right? You don't need to boost up the a, the, the hit points too much. I do. I would I would give the max hit points on that. Mm-hmm. But a slight boost in um in your AC, and let me just bring up Mummy Lord here on my notes because I am absolutely obsessive with notes. Um, they have damage immunity. Yeah, they have 97 hit points, but necrotic and poison and non-magical attacks don't hit them. And they also have magic resistance, so they have advantage on saving throws against spells. They can rejuvenate their body. And what was the, uh, there was one more crazy like regen thing that they had. Oh, silence. Between silence and hold person and um, shield of faith, they've got so much defensive shit to just remove people from the from the board and they have to spell magic too so raising them up to to their max hit points which is only 13 d8 plus 39 so that's not a hell of a lot but it's it's some um an ac of 19 is going to be enough for them yeah i mean i feel like the mummy lord as presented here and in the book it's the the scary factor is okay you killed it in three rounds congratulations and your party took some pretty big hits hey it's back tomorrow you didn't find the heart and you didn't know about the heart and now it's senior tactics. Oh, God damn it, you know. And but. the fact that the party can't regain hit points m- means that this is supposed to be a long-term thing. Yeah. Well, right? So yeah. you are supposed to defeat it a handful of times. Um, but having it, maybe just having these talismans thrown at the Mummy Lord's corpse in the middle of the yeah. battle, and every cultist has one, and yeah. you've got three or four cultists directly beside her. You can knock her down from 97, but she's going to stand right up. With all of her shit, she doesn't need to recharge any any of her abilities or anything. All of her spell slots are back. Bang, here she is. And we can establish this with a certain amount of these, these talismans. That's why I like it, because now it's a bit of uh, capture the flag with both sides. Right. Who's got them? One of the players goes down, go get it, right? Yeah. And, but we should establish early that there's that, like, the rogue or whoever dies lands on one and comes back, right? Yeah. Th- this is going to telegraph her being able to come back as well. And suddenly 
this relatively simple fight suddenly is going to take forever as we burn through these talismans. The other thing that I wanted to do was focus on the ritual itself. The players need to know what the ritual entails before they ever step foot in that whatever the room is, right? They need to know what that that needs. And one of the things that I absolutely would do would have it include blood sacrifices. Mm-hmm. She, we established in her backstory that she had to sacrifice to gain her power in the first place. She needs more power. She needs to be able to do stuff. More sacrifices. So have it be beloved NPCs that get captured in the last three or four sessions. Yeah. And then they will find them. Or even just like, hey, we're not in that section of the map anymore. It'd be really nice if we could go over to this island over here and talk to that person, but we don't have time. They show up and find that person bound on an altar ready to go. But if there are seven sacrifices required to go in a specific order, maybe they have 12 sacrifices ready so that as one gets rescued, the cultists, this is part of the contingency plan, bring forward another one. We have backup bodies. Yeah. Toby's fucked this up before. So for when Toby misses and we tell him cut the heart out and he's cutting this guy's fucking feet off, we need we need a back. I mean, we're not gonna tell Toby not to participate. We all love Toby, but we got his heart's in the right place, but fuck. His heart's in the right place. He just can't find it in other people's. It's fucking terrible. Uh so that brings me to my last point. I I love all of it. By the time that we've got all of the we maybe we have saved some of the well, there's gonna be choices that have to be made to save some NPCs over others and that's going to be a big memorable part that those big magic items that you've been saving for this moment they've got to be sheathed and hidden till halfway through this when all the dispel magic guys are dead right we've knocked her down a couple times she's come back up now we're out of talismans but the ritual has been completed but they only got six kills instead of seven so it's not doesn't work perfectly bang she ends up in this dragon turtle statue i have a stat block for you and it's absolutely fucking terrifying it's a CR 25. The average hit points, the AC is 22. Average hit points is 432. It flies and hovers. It's hyper-intelligent. It's a construct. It is immune to any spell or effect that would alter its form. Uh, if it fails a saving throw, it can choose to succeed on it instead three times a day. It has advantage on saving throws against spells and other magical effects. It doesn't require air, food, drink, or sleep. This is the merit. Merit. I was going to say, this is the one that teleports and grabs you and takes you back to prison. Yeah, I was looking at the merit earlier today, actually. Yeah. Plane shift, I would take off of this because Domain of Dread. But it gets to recharge on a 5 or 6 to have a 60-foot cube of intense 45 radiant damage. Um, They have to... The party's going to have to make a DC 20 wisdom save or be stunned. But here's the thing. There's no save against taking the damage. It just does it. So if you get stuck in that 60-foot cube, everyone takes 45 radiant damage. And then you save against being stunned until the end of the merits next turn. Additionally, and that recharges on a 5 or 6. Additionally, you have unerring slam. This is what it gets to do twice per round and why it's CR 25. Uh, It has an automatic hit within five feet on one target for 60 force damage. And then the part, and then that target is pushed up to five feet away if it's huge or smaller. This dragon turtle, maybe have it open its mouth and it does this unerring slam or it, it leaps forward and snaps its jaws or something, right? Like I might change the radiant damage of that 60 foot cube to necrotic because it's a mummy Lord. Yeah. But there's something here, right? This is the stat block that, should kill two of the party members and make this memorable. It uh, 
it should kill two of the party members. It should also, depending on how it's going with this, this, you know, just hitting everything in its area, that might be the tipping point to convince some of the lieutenants and minions. Oh, no, she doesn't fucking care. She's killing everything around her. She's she just wiped out Toby uh to get to all of them. Fuck guy, like yeah, suddenly the good guys and the bad guys are working together to just pepper her with as many spells and attacks as they can. And it doesn't yeah. matter. She wipes them out consistently. Right. The corpses that are left on the ground or floating in the water after this are yeah. dozens, right? Yeah. And your party will be the last five or six people standing, yeah. right? However many that you end up with. So this is where I would come at it for that big epic feel. But when what happens when the dragon turtle dies? When the dragon turtle statue is defeated? What is your actual Death Star blows up moment? So that, you know, thinking about it would be the... Um... Yeah, that would be the demise of the domain. You know, the, you've killed her, you've killed it, you've destroyed the heart pieces. Now the mists are going to part. But I was thinking, you know, the we, uh, one of the scary things about being in a ship is when the ship is sinking and it flips over. Mm -hmm. And that's probably like I would have the corpse. Okay, whatever was keeping the the island up is sinking, and it just flipped over. And so the parties either got to fight their way out the way they came, but it's now completely flooded as they're going out, or they've got to find a new way out of the body as it's going down. So here's what I would do with a domain of dread in general for your last moment is, yes, they go through this whole thing. I, I love everything you just said. And then they've escaped. The domain should then flicker in and out. The colors should become vibrant and then dull and vibrant and dull. And then suddenly goes vibrant. And everybody has to squint as their eyes adjust and discover the mists are gone and you can see the horizon now. The domain yeah. has been returned to reality. Yes. And when this happens, somehow, however you want to flavor this, all of the souls start floating upwards towards the heavens. All of the dead, including every undead. Remember, there was those ships that we had full of undead. Yeah. And there was a settlement that was full of undead. And like everybody who's now not stuck in the cycle begins to float towards the sky, including four or five massive dragon turtle souls that yes. are heading up and the one that everyone is on right now. And so she starts floating up. And then remember, we have the jailers in the shadow fell. One of them, a massive hand bursts out of the water, grabs this dragon turtle spirit and drags it down into the depths everyone else is free but her torment's not done yet i love that and i can add a uh a little bit of a further twist to it so her the her whole thing the reason she was doing all these atrocities was she was trying to keep a kraken asleep because she had been tasked by the goddesses to do that so that would be my uh you know, almost the, the 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 moment of you all reappear, these souls are going up, this giant thing is happening, that awakens the Kraken. And it comes bursting up out of the water. Well, and then that's when the giant hand comes up and grabs both of them. You know, hey, both of you are coming with me. And the party's just sitting there like, what the fuck just happened? If you want it, oh, shit, you want to know what you could do with this is have the Kraken itself has been dead. Yeah. And the don't wake up the Kraken was don't raise the Kraken from the dead. So mm. different phrase, a uh, different phrasing or different meaning to awaken. 
And you reveal this, if we're going level 20, you reveal this level 18. The Kraken's been dead the whole time, and all of this was for naught. And it was the powerful Kraken that was dead that was actually the jailer, the dark power that has created this domain of dread. And it's not a hand that comes up. It's a spectral tentacle. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that'll be, yeah. Okay. So so how do we feel about designing this final in, encounter, these, these little additions? Did we... The who as a bunch of cultists and allies and victims, right? The what is clearly going to be this ritual with sacrifices and and gathered magic. The when and where we didn't really address, except that it's time for the ritual. She has yeah. gotten all of the pieces and now she's returned to her lair to do the thing. Yeah. Right. The why, honestly, that's what the whole deal with the domain of dread is in the first place. Right. Right. And then the how is we've got a couple of backup resurrections, you know, in these little dragon talisman um, and amulets or however, whatever the items are that you want and however many of them you think is going to fit. Because mm-hmm. it would be really cool in a movie to have there be like dozens of them and people die and then someone else tosses one at their body and they pop up. That's too chaotic for D&D, right? Right, right. So whatever's going to fit your pacing appropriately. And then we have the final form of of the merit of this dragon turtle statue coming and just fucking up everything, right? And then uh, and she finally dies, and we can end the the session on escaping the boat. So there's there's still a skill challenge on this. Yes, yes, right. Um, maybe that's maybe that's the thing is every time that you get resurrected, you come back with one level of exhaustion. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that that skill challenge of escaping, not only are you moving slower if you've got too many, but you're also getting disadvantage on checks, right? And so it it behooves you to stay up, yeah. right? To to not die. Um and uh and then you have your big final moment of the realm is saved and she's damned forever, right? So what did we miss? What's the thing we didn't do? We didn't really do any payoff with her children. Yep. Except maybe you can see their souls floating up towards the heavens as well. So I was hoping that by by bringing in the corpse and soul of her son and him engaging in the fight with the animated dragon turtle statue, that that would be a little bit of a catharsis. You know, he's, he's not to be uh Let him speak common. Right. Right. I watched you kill my siblings. How could you betray family? That kind of right. shit. And yeah. that that's that there will be your catharsis. Right. Uh-huh. So adding that social aspect to your combat, right? Uh, you know, I can't think of what else I missed, but that's why I missed it. <laughs> um, when it comes to... So the, the only problem that I have is... And this is the problem with designing it too early. Because the campaign hasn't even started yet. This is not even a session zero. And this is something you're going to have to address much, much, much later towards the end of the campaign. But for all the things that we've talked about, so let me run through it again. Uh, we talked about that it doesn't have to be a fight, but I mean, it probably fucking should be. Uh, we have got an opportunity. There are enough things happening that the players will have enough to focus on that everyone will have the opportunity to be a hero, right? We've mm-hmm. got... Uh, couple of MacGuffins as far as these these uh, turtles are, but we also, the, these little turtle amulets or, or um, talismans, uh, but we also have these orbs that can suck up magic, and maybe if you get your hands on it, you can get a spell slot back, or 
something. Like we've got these altars where people have to be killed on them. Uh, we've rescued some of them. We've got a dragon turtle statue. We've got uh, bottles with ships in them. Like there's a lot of objects and items and a lot of exploration. There's going to be a complicated level of uh, social encounters as you rescue some people and choose not to rescue others as people die and come back. And then that big final gut punch of the son screaming at his mother. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we've got uh, all sorts of enemies and allies together. We've covered the who, what, when, where, why, and discussed the how, and included all of the different pillars. The one thing we didn't do, and here's the thing that we missed, is we didn't cheat. There is no agency for the party to, to plan this battle to get in here. But we can't do that until we've given them three quarters of a campaign worth of right. building blocks to work with on the way here. We need to see how they interact with her because maybe they don't give her the pieces of the heart and she's got to hunt them all down, right? right. That, that could be something they, they just choose not to because players going to be players, right? So there could be them deciding not to bring an army or maybe they say, yeah, you know what? Let her finish the whole ritual and then we'll just kill her as a dragon turtle, right? We don't know what, they, what they're going to do and right. we've got to be able to let them, right? So- right. We won't know what those pieces are. So of everything we've talked about so far in this episode, the scrying, the planning, the scheming is the one thing that we cannot account for. And that's good because it's the player's agency. And we've still left them enough room to do it. No, I agree. Um, yeah, we, we have no idea how they're going to approach. And it's just important that we give them, in, in writing this, that you, you create enough leeway and enough paths and options that they don't feel railroaded you know yeah so do we have any final thoughts any people personal social media or projects or anything you'd like to mention before we wrap this episode up um uh normal final thoughts are again thank you for starting this whole thing you know i i adore the podcast i love how you make this approach where you bring in us listeners to uh to contribute this is fantastic um and the only people I'm going to plug, uh, I've plugged him before. I think I actually paid for advertisement uh, for him. He's a buddy of mine named Miguel who does just a massive amount of 3D modeling for minis. He's worked his way through almost all of the books at this point and some of the uh, non-Wizards of the Coast books. Uh, he goes by, let's see, it's like MZ4250 on Reddit, I believe is his uh his handle and yeah please uh if you have a chance and you happen to like minis or uh yeah mz4250 if you like minis you like art you, you like an entertaining guy who will make everything from you know detailed battle ready minis of the spelljammer ships to uh a spiritual weapon that was a sandal uh the, the spiritual chunkla uh that he made um <laughs> that apparently was used at a a D and D uh, uh, session with Lynn uh, Manuel Miranda. Uh, nice. So, yeah. So he he's all over the place, but uh, yeah, he's great. Take a look at his stuff. Yep. All right. Well, that's all for our discussion on planning a final encounter. Robert, thank you again for choosing this topic and for creating this entire situation this this episode with me and then supporting the Patreon. Uh, it means a world of of good emotions for to everybody involved and. Uh, and we were able to, I don't know if we said it in the in an episode recently, but this year, at the end of 2023, 
it'll be 2024 by the time this comes out, but we were able to do a bunch of stuff like uh, finally not have to pay for our renewals for all of our web hosting and all that shit because of the Patreon. I was able to pay all of our editors, uh, our artists, our music, and our um, uh, website uh, designer and, and the people that, that maintain it for us. That's and uh, I am like 90% of the way to finally getting an editing computer um and getting rid of this chunky chunky piece of shit that i'm on so um it the patreon has made this podcast what it is it's kept everybody excited and and happy and everybody loves to get in to the discord and and mix it up with you guys in there uh my favorite thing in the discord right now is the fact that we're having we've got one of the patrons is creating little emojis mm. so we have a purple saxophone uh that we can use yeah and uh uh, CrossFit half orc uh, trick as well. Good, 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 yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyways, for everybody else, thanks for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. I really appreciate the number of times that Chronicles of Riddick has come up in this episode. And yeah. it's one of those, it's the pitch black trilogy is right up there with um, the fifth element for me as being just like such good sci-fi that no one talks it's, about. It is. And they, they butcher Chronicles of Riddick in the, the theatrical release. And it's such a good movie. I was watching it like two days ago and I watched Riddick again. I, I love that whole series. I'm convinced that Vin Diesel did all of his fast films to fund his, you know, nerd D&D, The Last Witch Hunter, Bloods, all of that. Um, and I was actually going to mention, I was going to mention uh, Fifth Element earlier uh, when we were talking about the social encounter between the, um, you know, the heroes and the villains. I love a weird fact about that movie. The yeah. hero and villain never meet. Yeah, I know. And I think it's amazing. It's so good. It's so well done. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's a situation where you don't need to build your villain off of, oh, as, as a reflection of the characters and a reflection of the party. No, Zorg is a fully developed character unto himself. It's been fantastic. Uh, I, I think it's worth doing that for some people, but it's absolutely not necessary, right? right. Um, this is fun. I, I am curious to see how this campaign, how this, and I know that like you're going to do a book club next, right? Yeah. So it's going to be a while before you get to this, but honestly, by the time it comes around, you're going to have this whole thing so fleshed out. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. So, um, 